Welcome to episode 128 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever discussing our passion for Linux. I'm Michael, and with me, with me today are the Gnurus of Linux, nice. Noah, Ryan, and Zeb. So, Zeb, what has been new, new with you this week? Um, well, I was waiting, uh, patiently waiting uh, for the arrival of the new Raspberry Pi 4, um, which came uh, a little bit earlier in the week, so I've been running through that and seeing seeing what it can do. Um, but while I was waiting for it to arrive, um, this might please Ryan, but I finally installed Arch the Archway. Yes! So ever since I've done it, I've been asking oh myself, boy. why? What? No, no, Zeb. Yeah. What do you mean why? You, you took the moment to enjoy the learning experience of building your machine tailored or a distro tailored to your machine, right? I've lost two hours of my life. I'll never get back. Yeah. Oh, come on. What did you okay, like about so, it? Pa- the thing I think you missed during the Arch installer, that little uh, EULA that you agreed to, if you read it carefully in there, it says for the rest of your life, you're going to tell everybody the great virtues of Arch, regardless if you believe it or not, regardless if it works or not, regardless if your software is there or not, you have to talk about Arch everywhere you go. Just it's look true. Right. Yeah, that's it's actually true. number one Number one of the things that yeah. you have to say, but there's also a number two, which is hilarious because they, and their number two is to tell you that the first thing you say is, by the way, I use Arch. Yes. Right. This right. is a fact. So is this like one of those um, email chains that is just waiting for somebody to break it? No, it's a user oh, end user license agreement, commonly yeah. abbreviated EULA. And if yeah. you've installed Arch, then you agreed to it. Yep. Yes, automatically. Mm-hmm. I never agree to anything. Whether so, how do you like uh, how do you like Arch? Have you actually spent some time using Spent- it, other than installing it? Uh, I installed it, and I was uh, using it to watch a few bits and pieces. I wanted to make sure mm-hmm. that Pulse Audio worked. So, everything seems to be working as I would expected it to. And it was the Plasma version, which um, I was quite pleased with. But the thing that I found it made it so difficult is find a simple tutorial that covered all of the steps. And it wasn't until I got to the third one that I actually managed to do a UEFI install. Um, And even that was lacking the bit where it told you to install SDDM, but then forgot to tell you to run the systemctl command to enable it and actually start it. So I'm I'm trying to work out after 13 reboots why I'm still not getting a login screen. And it was just two simple commands, enable it and start it, reboot, and I was in. Yes, it's there. Yes, it was satisfying. But the question I'm always going to ask myself is, what little tweaks have I not put in there that the experts put in that make it that bit of a better experience? And I just don't have the mind that can go out to the internet and find what's going to work with my particular equipment, what kernel parameters you might want to put in. But you do have a mind that tells you what you don't like about a given Linux installation, right? Because okay. honestly, if, if honestly, Zeb, the truth is what what I found is it, it, it's not like there's there's really no and Brian, correct me if I'm wrong. There is no magical incantation of things that you have to add for for Arch to be just a little bit better. What makes it that little bit better is the fact that you can tweak everything exactly the way that you want it. Right. Like exactly. everything is built the exact way you want it and nothing is on that system that you are aware of because you put it on there. And so there is no I wonder if this is using ulcer pulsa. You know, ulcer pulsa. Ulsa or pulse. <laughs> wow. Uh you know what's on there cuz you put that system on there and you know nothing is stealing the audio input away from it because oh. there was, you know, two fighting or whatever stuff like that. That to me anyway, that's what makes that. it. But then I'm assuming that pulse got installed when I put in um Pac-Man minus S base and base development. I'm assuming that all mm. just piled in because of it. So I didn't have to Bad example. every single individual 
uh, item. But it's knowing those items and knowing what parameters you can make to tweak it. So, yes, it's a good install, and yes, it appears fast, but it's no faster than Salient. Well, I think you, you bring up a good, a good point. You have to be in the mindset for Arch, and that's what I tell people even when we did it at the Lug. I was like, yeah, we'll do a whole event where we'll install Arch for you because the person was fairly new. And But the whole idea really is for that person then to go back and really understand the different commands and things that you're running. And the learning experience, like Noah was saying, is invaluable because now you understand all of those things that you take for granted normally in a normal distro installation because they do all the work for you. Now you start understanding all of these little things you need. And I remember the first time I installed Arch, there were so many things missing that I would, you know, that you just don't think about on a normal basis, such Mm -hmm. as maybe a widget for your uh, audio volume controls or something along those lines that you just go in and you're looking for it. It's not there. And, oh, I've got to find that. I've got to install it. Well, now who makes that widget? Where, what widget do I want to use for that? Like there's all these different things But by the time you're done, you have this fully customized distro. And one of the reasons why I think Arch is so stable compared to other Arch-based distros is because it doesn't have that bloat. Actually, that wasn't my theory. That was Michael's because I kept asking him, man, when I use these Arch-based distros, usually in a month or two or three, it'll crash. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you won't be able to keep utilizing them. And he said, well, probably because Arch is exactly what you put on there. There's no bloat. There's no trying to find packages for things you don't care about. There's none of that. So it's, it's very minimum. So I think that's the advantage of Arch. But I want to touch on a point that you said about the install process, because Arch is about, they'll say, we, we do everything to keep it simple, right? They use the KISS principle. Keep it simple, <laughs> stupid type thing. That's ridiculous. Now, when they use the KISS Thing. They're not saying that things are easy in Arch. That simple is not as in easy, but mm-hmm. simple as in not bloated, right? And not, yeah, not, not overcomplicated. Not yeah. overcomplicated. And so to me, though, the one thing about Arch that they don't use the KISS principle for is actually their Arch installation process on their Arch wiki. No, so, no, no. You mean the beginner's guide. Yeah, the beginners. The beginners guide. Guide. <laughs> in fairness, Arch does say if you're a beginner, don't use us. I mean, they well, make that they shouldn't call it the beginner's guide. Is my point. They should call it something else, and you know, tell like or beginners to Arch or something like that. Like they should just not call it that. Like you know, just just call it an install script. It's just that's just makes more sense. But, but the same you thing can't with the simple. Follow their wiki. Like normally, the Arch wiki. I mean, that's what helped me lead to the Pulse Audio fix that uh, I has helped to me now for months that I was facing for years is, is the Arch Wiki. It's an amazing resource, and we talk about how great it is. But the install process part of the Wiki, that Wiki is horrible. It, it, mm-hmm. it just it assumes so much, mm-hmm. and this is so many important And things. if you update it and try to change something and add extra features to make it better, they'll remove them and send like link to that other, another section completely instead of using the thing that you were suggesting. And that's what they do a lot. They actually, within the installation process, they link to other areas that are vital to actually getting Arch to work, mm-hmm. but it's just a link hidden in there that you have to click on, and, and, and it, they don't make it known that you have to go through that section if you actually want a working Arch at the mm-hmm. end. And, and it's so- much more complicated than those other sections, too, because it's not, it's not a guide. It's a description of how these things exist. Like, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's not it's a continuation of the guide. It's yeah. literally just, this well, is what this thing need- is. Maybe I need to rephrase that I installed Arch the Arch way, because I didn't. I installed Arch the Tech Mint way. Well, that is the Arch and, way, and but you didn't use the Arch Wiki. Correct. Which, yeah. yeah, it was. It was actually used. A, you used a, the, a guide to the Arch way, so you actually yeah. used a guide that was better than the their guide. 
So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was, the, for, it was better for me because apart from that one thing, um, and that was on a different um, page that was to do with installing Plasma. So apart from that one minor thing where they forgot to tell you to start system CTL SSDM, whatever the command was, it it worked and it was the only one that did work for me. So yeah, I'll keep yeah. it and I'll and I'll keep trying to tweak it. But I know exactly what you're talking about, Ryan. When you install a distro you get all of those other bits and pieces that somebody thought you might want to use. But with them not being there, yes, you have kept it simple. You have just got those components that you want to work. Therefore, it will have less chance to break. Yeah, this yep. is it's kind of a thing, though. I don't like the fact that they use the, the simple word. Like, they keep it simple. Uh, KISS system. I don't like the fact that they can they call it that. Because that, that word, it's, it's the same thing that a lot of uh, projects use terminology that is already assumed for something else and it just makes stuff confusing like the idea that free software is not going to be associated to to the the amount of money involved right like the idea that saying something is simple or easy or something like that is not taking consideration of like what they people are actually going to assume you mean if they were to say minimal instead of simple it would it would actually define exactly what they're wanting without any assumption and or during the Manjaro installation, to, to give you another example, one of the things I always hated was, and, and in fact, I helped somebody with this just this week in a Manjaro installation where it has the free versus non-free. Do you want free drivers or non-free drivers? Nobody knows what that means. Yeah. Like, exactly. unless you're a Linux geek, you have no idea what that means. Now, if you said open source driver versus non-open source driver or proprietary NVIDIA driver installation versus, that would make sense. But free versus non-free... What, what I'm going to get charged if I click this section? I remember thinking, like, what are they, when I first, this was years ago, installed Manjaro, what are they trying, like, is there a part where I would pay money? Like, what are they trying to allude yeah. to here? I mean, the, the, the free it's aspect cool. is just a, it's such a horrible decision in terms of, like, terminology that it, it doesn't make any sense that it's still the thing that's used. Because if you look at the, the amount of time that has passed and how very little progress that the free software movement has had in terms of convincing people that that's not what it means, that it's not money-based. Like, basically, they've gone nowhere, and they've spent 40 years to try. It, it, you give up and change the term to Libra, and you're done. Like, it solves it completely. The people who know what that word means, they already know. People who don't know what that word means aren't making an assumption because they don't know what the word means. So they look it up and find out it means liberty, so therefore freedom. Problem solved, done, solved it in 10 seconds. Why did it take you 40 years and you're still not even doing it? <laughs> so, Zeb, I, I beg that you keep Arch on your machine because I would be – one of the theories I have is when I switch from NVIDIA to AMD, that the reason why I can't get these other distros that other people say, oh, it's unstable, like um, Arch, to crash, which I'm still – like right now I'm in Arch. This is month, what, four or five that I've been in Arch with zero crashes, zero <laughs> is because I'm on AMD. That's one of my theories. So I would be fascinated since you use NVIDIA if at any point, if you just keep it on your system and every once in a while go in there and update it to see if at any point you crash because maybe they've overcome those issues there too. But my theory right now is it's an Intel AMD with open source drivers, but we'll have to see. Mm -hmm. Well, just just to sort of shoot that in the foot, I did run Manjaro for six months without a single crash. That's awesome to hear. I love that. Yeah. So it for me... And whenever where everybody was having this huge panic because X, Y, Z happened, when I'm on Arch, I don't install it every single day of every single hour. I maybe wait a couple of days 
then check the forums to see whether or not they've had some problems and there's a fix for it. So I've maybe been able to not come across those problems by doing it that way. So uh, if, if you're watching the video, I just randomly started laughing because I just realized we've only just talked to the Zeb as how's his week been. So Ryan, a, how are you doing this week? It's such, it was such a good topic. It was a good topic. It was like 20 minutes and I was like, I'm okay with it. If you ask Zeb about Arch, it's kind of like saying, hey, Ryan, do you want to take some time on the show to talk about Arch? <laughs> <laughs> or AMD, right? Yeah, Pretty much um, interchangeable. Well, this week I completed an interview that's out there now with Rocco on Linux Spotlight. So that's pretty interesting because he's going to look at behind the scenes of the person. So this is kind of one of the first interviews that aren't necessarily focused on the Linux side, but also other parts. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Um, but we also got some time this week to play Borderlands, Michael, live streaming Borderlands, the pre-sequel. So that was a lot of fun. And I had a review out there for... Uh, or put a review out there for my new monitor, which is the MSI Optics 32-inch curved 1440p monitor, which is just absolutely beautiful. So um, you could go check that out as well. So that's what I've been playing with this week. Yeah, it looks awesome. I, I really want to play with that monitor. Yep. Oh, and Michael, you're coming to my lug group. Right, specifically so those, to play with that monitor. So for those who go to Linux and Coffee in Georgia, this is July 6th. 6th. Yeah. Michael will be there. This is also the one where Bo is going to do live pen testing mm -hmm. and break into right. some machines, which is going to be a lot of fun. So you do not want to miss that. If you've not come to in your near the area to the Linux and coffee lug group, go check it out on my website, dusky community sign up because that's going to be a ton of fun. And plus Michael's going to be there. I mean, exactly. what else do you need to know? Exactly. And, and added bonus, you too can mess up his hair. Yes, exactly. Everyone's invited to mess up his hair. We'll have a little corner, and he'll sit in a chair, and everyone just goes to town. <laughs> it's like it's like a, a amusement park type ride. Time. Yeah, exactly. He's, just, he's coming like what are those things? I forgot what they're called, but it's the, like the dunk tank. It is called a dunk tank where yeah. you hit the bell and it messes up the thing. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna yeah. like it's gonna be like that. Yeah, you, you donate a dollar to a FOSS project, you get to mess up Michael's hair. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Noah, what have you gotten yourself into this week? We, uh, we finally got the finishing touches and uh, have gotten some really good feedback on our distro review site, uh, linuxdelta.com. I, I don't know if I've talked about that on Destination Linux. I, I thought we mentioned it at, at Southeast Linux Fest, but if not... We did on the Southeast Linux Fest, but other than that, we, need, we definitely need to talk about it. Yeah, so essentially what we're doing is trying to give the community a place to go to discuss distros because... You know, just like what is happening with Zeb and Orion, there's an exchange of information there where a, an experienced Linux user has used a particular distro and has some insight to it. And then a new user wants to come to that distro and they need to know what they need to know about that. And so what LinuxDelta.com does is marries those two people together in a distro way. Um, so if, if, if you are an Arch user, then we'd ask you to, or any distribution user, then we'd ask you to go to LinuxDelta.com and click on whatever distro it is that you use and write a review of your experience and what other people need to know. We have a rating system that's broken out for workstation, server, IoT, and um, uh, I, I guess that's it. Workstation, server, IoT. I thought there was a fourth one. Well, anyway, uh, Every different application that you can use a particular distro for is there. And so you can give it a rating system. So one of the first things that we heard, people came back and said, hey, I need to be able to leave no rating because I've never used Manjaro, for example, for an Internet of Things device. I've only used it as a desktop or a server. And so we've added that functionality. And so now that change is going to get pushed out, I think, on Monday. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a place for the community to come in and review distros. One of the things is we've gotten questioned a lot, actually, is people have gone, well, what's wrong with like DistroWatch? And of course, the issue is that they, they essentially rank distros based on how many people click on them on the site. It really has nothing to do with how many people actually like them. So I might be coming to look at, I might be coming to, 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 to a given site and I just click on a distro because it, the logo looked cool or whatever. That doesn't mean I actually like the distro or it's mm -hmm. rising in popularity. It just means people have clicked on it for some reason. And so what we're trying to do is incorporate the same thing that we do with Amazon.com or, or B&H Photo and Video and where people go to those sites primarily to do research, where they go to the sites and they sort by number of reviews, they sort by uh, a given product that they're interested in, and then they read through them and make their decision based on reviews. And so if you got a distro that has 3,500 some reviews and they're all four and a half stars, chances are it's a pretty good distro. And if you have another distro that has two and a half stars for desktop use and it's got 4,500 reviews, chances are it's not a great dis desktop distro. And right now that, that mechanism doesn't exist. And so we're trying to create it. Nice. It's, it's interesting how I was just over here looking at the first distro on here, which I'm very glad you guys ranked it first, which was Arch. I'm just kidding. It's an alphabetical, alphabetical order. Yeah. Um, that I, I was looking through this and you can actually see a lot of personalities out there that from different shows doing reviews for instance gabe from tech pills uh, mm -hmm. site and has started leaving some uh reviews there also you put your own personal reviews in there as well as some of us and other people from the community but the four topics are desktop server iot and overall and overall I, that's what it yeah, is yeah i absolutely love it i think it's such a great idea and something needed where you can go through and read the specific comments and you don't have this you know artificial limit on the amount of text you can put. So if you really want to understand, maybe I'm trying to find if this is a good use case for me, I want to see what this person went through, some of the stuff they've done or what they've commented on. You get you get the full reveal, the full review right, right there on the mm -hmm. site, which I like a lot. Nice. And how do you go about asking for an additional uh, distro to be placed on there? So right now, uh, we're tracking all of the issues and feature requests on GitLab. However, um, the part of the next push of the site, which all the coding and stuff is done, uh, we're, we're just waiting on one tiny little thing to come through, and then I think it's going to get pushed on Monday. Uh, and that will give us the, the I didn't rate it, so the n zero stars or non-applicant. In other words, don't I'm not rating this particular thing. Um, and then along, that, along with that is a, a, a contact us form for just general stuff and a submit a new distro. So if somebody has a distro that say, hey, um, nice. you know, for example, Peppermint OS is not on there. Mm -hmm. I would like to have it added. Then um, the only thing is that you'd have to have somebody from the project. They'll have to fill out a thing that basically says, hey, we're allowing you to use the logo and uh, you can have this and we're aware that this exists in here. Like, so for example, the fine folks at System76, the description that we use, they said, hey, we would really prefer that it come from our site. We'd like it to be linked back to, to, to our site rather than the Wikipedia that you used. Um, can, can we do that? We said, absolutely. So now we've just incorporated all of that into the submit a distro form where mm -hmm. uh, the people that are in charge of the distro have some say into how their distribution is represented because obviously, nice. you know, we are to a certain degree stepping in on a little bit of their branding. So yeah, looks good. I love it. Yeah, and one last thing I'll point out is one of the things I like is the fact that you can go in and tell if you find somebody's review useful, which is very helpful because some people mm. are plain fanboys or whatever, right? Sure. Like me um, for certain things. <laughs> but because you can go in there and say, hey, this comment's really useful. It contains all the important stuff. That allows you to go through and find comments that are of particular, you know, where somebody's particularly put enough information in there that 
uh, ranks it up above other comments where somebody just says, yes, I love it. You know, sure. it's the greatest thing ever. So people can go in there and actually rank the comments that are left on the site, which I like. Cool, cool. Well, thanks for the feedback. I appreciate it. And obviously, if anybody has insight or thoughts, uh, head over to linuxdelta.com. Let us know. We'd love to love to have the, we'd love to make it a place for the community to come and exchange ideas. All right. So this week we have another email sent to us and they say, Hey guys, first of all, I am a longtime listener of your podcast. I think listen to every episode from 20 until now and wanted to thank you for all your work and contributions to the Linux wow. community. You may not know me or not, but I have contacted you sometimes in Telegram groups. Since I'm from Iran, I had problems joining some groups in Telegram. I talked to Michael about it if he remembers. Yep. Sure Michael, do. there sure you do. go. I have started to maintain some packages on Arch Linux AUR. By the way, I use Arch. See, he gets it. That's what you have to start using, Zip. And now maintaining packages like Mon, Godb, Bin, Etcher, Undistract, some Persian fonts, and so on. Some days ago, someone emailed me for the first time and thanked me for my work and asked for a way to donate to me. I was not expecting it at all, and he donated $10 today. I got very, very, very happy about it. Not because of money, because of the appreciation itself and reaching me by email for the first time. I just wanted to thank that guy and say, please send these type of emails and say thanks to anyone when you use their work. They will be very happy and more passionate to spend time on their work. I also have a mobile pixelated game for you, especially Zeb, Shattered Pixel Dungeon, play a roguelike game. I've actually played that. It is a pretty cool game there. Sorry for the long email and thanks again. So uh, I love this email for so many reasons, but we have tried to spread the message about saying thanks multiple times. And I know the first time somebody gave me a donation for the project on my GitHub, it freaked me out and I felt compelled to work on it more. Like I was like, Oh my right. gosh, somebody actually gave me my, I really need to do something here worthy of money. Cause it's not at least in my mind, but it does make such an impact because at the end of the day, we're only human and just having people say thanks, or we get that in a telegram group, people will randomly say, Hey, I really love that episode. That mm -hmm. actually matters. It hits us. It, you know, it, it drives us forward and the same for developers and the projects that you're using. So very important stuff. Yeah, just just even saying thank you and give, showing appreciation is a huge motivator to most people. And as I mean, us for example, like the example that you gave in the Telegram group, when people post it and say, "Hey, we love this this episode," and here's why. That is such a uh, invaluable uh, information. Like, there's no there's no way that we can just like explain like, exactly how how much it gives you motivation. But if you tell people that you even if it's not even just giving them money you just tell them like you appreciate their work that in itself is motivation to continue because there's a lot of times where the projects and especially in open source there's very little information that they know how many people are using their software so you telling them that they, that you're using it and you know thanking them for that help or for make, thanking for making that thing gives them so much more motivation that you you're probably not even thinking about because a lot of the times most people in this in this these space of development they'll get a lot of feedback but that feedback is like here's this bug i found here's this other thing that it's annoying or whatever so they get more of that because people typically wait until they need to you know, report something before they actually tell them. And if you don't, if you don't wait for that, you let them know that you appreciate their work. It means a ton. And you know, the more you do that, the more, the more, the more motivation they have, the more, the, more, the way they want to make it better. So just can be sure to keep in mind when you, when you have something that you're using and you love it, let them know. Sounds like a plan. Um, and we would just want to say to our, our users and listeners that 
we thank you for sending in your emails because it's your emails that we read through every week. And we do sometimes find it very difficult to pick the email that we're going to get into the show to come up with a topic. But don't let that stop you. Send us your favorite software tip and trick. Send us information on how you use Linux, maybe what we're doing wrong with the show. Is there a specific topic that you want us to discuss or try and cover? So send those emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. Also, another special thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all, get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month, or you can use their flexible, flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for one month for free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash dl. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $50 credit by going to do.co slash dl. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring Destination Linux. So last week, we recorded a whole segment about the Ubuntu situation with 32-bit. But last week we recorded an entire episode on. <laughs> yeah, it was probably a good forty-five minutes, uh, and it was right. It was like the whole time that Noah had for recording until he got kicked out of his hotel in the middle of the stream. But we pulled that, and the reason we pulled that whole segment was because so much changed by the time we were going to get the episode out that Thursday that the information really wasn't relevant. So I know people are probably tired of even talking about this at this point uh, for the most part, but I think there are some important, like Michael and I went back and forth whether we include it in this episode, but I think there's some important learning opportunities here about this entire situation that are worthy of covering. And since we have you know, a lot of the developers and, and community members of Canonical that watch this show or participate in different things that we do, I think it is important that we do cover this information. So for anyone who may not be aware, I'm just going to give you the TLDR version here. Ubuntu basically had a decided that they were going to remove 32-bit uh, packages entirely. And this was very unlike other distros like Arch or OpenSUSE or Fedora who maintain a small segment of packages. Ubuntu was maintaining a massive amount of 32-bit packages and were basically was deciding or had announced that they were going to not support any 32-bit in their 19.10. Is that right? 19.10, Michael? Mm -hmm. uh, version of Ubuntu. So it was something that had not happened yet, but that they had announced was going to happen. Now, there was fallout from this. There was fallout from the community. There was fallout from major news sites. There was tons of tweets and every social media telling Canonical not to do this. Canonical, basically, I don't know when the news broke, but sometime maybe a Friday and then Saturday no, and the, Sunday. The actual, the, the announcement was done on Tuesday and then it was uh, not picked up for multiple days. There was people on the forum responding with not doing it as well, but it was more of like people in the community that were doing it and developers that were also not in agreement. Uh, but it didn't, like the 
you know, the the response, the big response did not happen until Valve posted a tweet. Well, one of the Valve developers posted a tweet about them no longer going to officially support Ubuntu because of this decision. Or at least not, they were going to not a, a support it going forward and they were not going to recommend it anymore. Yeah, so the fallout here that happened is Canonical came out eventually and clarified, well, no, we're not going to remove them. We're just going to freeze them which we can get into that in a second. But the fallout is a lot of people focus just on the fact that this impacts Steam. Obviously, Steam made an announcement during this time on the weekend that if they do this, they're, they're no longer going to be Steam's official partner, which Steam is a $2.5 billion company that you know Ubuntu got a lot of its... Um, I, I would say Ubuntu in Canonical had a very uh, a relationship that where they both were able to benefit from each other a lot, meaning Ubuntu being for the new users and easy to use and gaming and Linux overall, having Steam there as your official partner, that is a very mutually beneficial partnership there to have in place. And Steam basically stating they were going to pull their support was a big deal. So everyone focused on the gaming aspect. But I think it's also important to note that removing 32-bit or freezing them, meaning no security updates, no compatibility with 64-bit applications as they change, is basically the same as removing it. And uh, additionally, there are other applications such as Wine and applications people would run in Wine. Or for instance, um, Ubuntu Studio had certain audio packages and plugins and things that require 32-bit libraries. So this was way more than just gaming on Linux, which a lot of people focused on. There were other things that this would hit. So we basically, I'm, I'm going to open it up here because I want everyone to give their opinion on this situation. It's not to beat up Canonical or beat up Ubuntu right. because obviously they reversed their decision and decided they're now going to maintain a small pocket of the 32-bit libraries, which is the decision they should have made to begin with. Agreed. And they are going to move forward that way. And Steam is still looking for other distro partners, but they're still going to continue to partner for Ubuntu for now. But now they're open to looking at other partners and distros. So I think there was some fallout from this. I don't think even, even though Canonical changed their mind, there were a lot of users who got mad about this and switched. And sure. there are a lot of partnerships that potentially were damaged by this so let's get into it but i do want to make a just a quick note that it is the thing the first thing we should say is that it's you know there's a good job on canonical and ubuntu for changing their minds and yeah. actually listening to the community because a lot of companies would just you know power through it and ignore the community's re like requests and even though a lot of people there's also some people who don't who think that they should get rid of it there's there's the the main benefit of what people wanted was the ability to have base lips. So the only issue that people had a problem with is the removal of entire the architecture entirely. If they mm -hmm. kept base lips, there wouldn't have been this outlet, this out uh, outlash from the, or the fallout from Valve either. Because the only thing that they cared about was was keeping the support for the libraries. If if they hadn't done that, Valve would have probably never even made a, any kind of fuss at all. So like the the main fallout was because they were getting rid of base lips. But the the fact that they are listening to the community. And reverting that decision and keeping the base libs and making it where the decision to what what packages and what libraries are being included is not only something that they're going to be doing, you know, making sure that they have is what they, they can get. They're also going to be talking with the community and let the community submit what they think the packages sh should be. So it's it's not it's you know, it's actually kind of being more of a collaboration on that, that side, too. So I do want to say that's a good job to Canonical for doing that. 
Yeah, and, and, and it's definitely a good do- job, but I, I do want to point out there were some really bad communication decisions through here. So while they I mean, retroactively, up, it was a good idea. It was a good job, but previously, previously yeah. it was a terrible decision. But yeah. not, not only that, but let's talk about the fact that the entire weekend went during yeah. this whole fiasco without an official response from Canonical. And the one re- official response we, if it's considered official, we got was basically, well, we're just going to freeze them. We're not going to remove them. And that to me was very frustrating lack of communication on a serious issue. This isn't like, hey, uh, one game's going to stop working. We can wait yeah. till Monday to talk about it. We're also talking about a $500 million plus dollar organization that doesn't want to respond to anything when they're losing potentially critical partnerships. Now, I get there's some time needed to make some decisions and change things, but any job I've ever worked from for from a Fortune 500 company currently to uh, a small business, if there was a PR disaster going on on the weekend, Noah, I'm pretty sure you'd probably call some people in to start having some responses. So l- let me let me uh, let me see if I can reframe that question a little bit. So uh, when we off the air, when you and I were talking about, you said you had heard what I talked about on the Ask Noah show and said you thought I took us too soft of an approach. Weak sauce, I think I used. Right, <laughs> weak uh, sauce. Weak so so it, and I guess here's what I would tell you: I don't fault t- canonical for the technical portion. Right, I think it's perfectly appropriate for the company tasked with maintaining a distribution to constantly poke at things and say, hey, do we still need this? Do we still need this? Do we still need this? And if and and I think what is frustrating to me about this entire conversation is everybody acts like they out of the blue announced this on Tuesday and then the entire world freaked out. And that couldn't be further from the truth. This has been something since back from like 2014. No. They've been talking about, yes, and have been working on and constantly talking about. And I, I actually, one of the guys that... um that were the, the the very last issue that came up. He actually sent me a copy of the of the mailing list, and you can actually go through and look back at how many times uh, the this this has been a topic of conversation, and how that discussion mm-hmm. evolved, and how they eventually got to a point where they were like, "Hey, uh, let's just let's just see how this goes forward." So sure. I don't necessarily fault Echo them. Chambers for are that. a thing. I I don't fault. Well, you know what. Michael, honestly, that is on the community then. You know, you can't. No, it's on, it's on so Canonical tired. for not I, no, it's saying. Not. Yes. No, it's no, not. No, it's not. The, Let me what, explain why. Why did this happen? They posted on a forum. And say, you can't sit there and say, hey, all of these discussions take place, but you just sit back in your armchair and let the adults handle it until you don't like something and then throw a fit like a child and then we'll, uh, the, uh, you know, the problem, reverse course. The problem That's is a complete, no, the problem is them saying that they've been talking about it since 2014. The community can be involved. They have. Yes, but no one knew the that. The community wasn't involved because they chose not to be involved. No, not because, because they, not because people don't. It's not, on some, it's not a mailing list. It's not on some secret. Right. You yeah, know, but mailing lists are super popular. Right. Exactly. Everybody right. loves those. But, but more importantly, by choice. why it's not did this happen? Behind a closed door. Why did people find out about it? So why be- was Valve shocked their partner? Because well, so according to Canonical, and again, I I will be the first person to say that this information is questionable at best. But uh, according to the official statement given by Canonical, Valve was included in this decision, was aware of the decision, and knew what was going to happen. Valve, mm-hmm. Valve themselves responded to that and said they were aware of no. it. While well, one developer responded and said he wasn't no, aware. No, no, aware. no, no, no. They ev- he, he posted it on an official uh, – it was the same developer, but he posted yep. it on the official website, on steamcommunity.com, right. pinned it, and it is marked as an official statement that they were told a month before that it was yep. happening. 
That is yep. not enough time to change your entire architecture of your it's entire not, ecosystem. But it, Four well, months think, okay, is not so enough time. Let's break, so let's break that down. So first of all, I don't think changing their architecture of their ecosystem is ever a possibility, right? So I think we can set that aside and throw that out. The, the what, what Essentially what you come to is when they make that announcement, was one month enough time for Valve to say, you can't do that. That will break our stuff. If you do that, we're going to find another partner. Yes, a one month is more than enough time. Frankly, 24 hours is more than enough time to make that decision, right? We didn't even and, see if they responded so, to them or so, not. So where you get to is a couple of things. First of all, the community needs to be better involved. If they want If they want a say in something, then they have to be involved. If we don't like mailing lists, then let's stop using mailing lists and move to a different technology and pressure Canonical or, or make a statement to Canonical that, hey, mailing lists are apparently no longer the way that we want to have that conversation. But I refuse to throw Canonical under the bus for having that conversation and people not being involved in the conversation. No, no, no. They I'm, I'm Which, not throwing the way, under the bus. exactly the same just... thing that happens yeah. with Mozilla. They go through they have these meetings in the open they invite everybody to attend then everybody is unhappy with the results of the meeting and then they complain about it and throw a big fit so the i i absolutely will defend canonical for the technical portion where i won't defend canonical and what ryan was eventually getting to or i think what his original question was was how they responded after the fact which was nothing which was frankly was really poor Right. From the time that this information comes out and you see the backlash of the community, you have one of two choices. Either you admit that the community is right and you've made a grave error, in which case you tell them right away, hey, we didn't realize it was going to be that big of a deal. Sorry, we're going to reverse course. That's option one. Option two is you stand by your guns and you defend your action, which I heard a couple of podcasters were doing, saying, hey, Canonical should have sat up and said, you know what, Steam, screw yourself. You, your games don't want to run on Linux. We didn't really want to be a Linux gaming platform anyway. anyway. It doesn't really apply to our IPO, and it's not really, uh, it's not really important there. So uh, good luck with your game thing. Hopefully you find another Linux distro to land on. We don't care. That's the other thing you do. And what we got was neither of those two things. We got this in-between of people playing games to see what would break, right? Now, that's something you would think would happen before you make the decision to pull the libraries out, right? Yes. You would think that somebody would sit down and say, huh, I wonder what software breaks. So th the fact that that's happening after the fact strikes me as kind of a publicity stunt. Then after that, what Ryan was saying, their inability to respond to the situation, get everybody in the office. We have a crisis. There is a fire because you, you're you about to lose one of the most prominent mainstream partners you have pushing Linux on the desktop. Now, if you don't care about Linux on the desktop, fine. Mm -hmm. uh, let it run. And who well, cares? It doesn't really affect your IPO. But if you do care about it and you're not just concerned about cloud and you're not just concerned about IoT, get your button to the office and deal with the situation at hand. Or at least See, just now, get on a phone now, call. Now that's, sauce. now that's fire sauce. Well, I mean, part of that part of that is, right, like, I, I mean, I, I, I am, I, again, I go into, the, here's the, the biggest problem I think we had overall. Forget the technical thing. Forget Canonical's PR. The biggest thing we have is people like to take a very complicated issue and condense it down into 30 seconds to get as many clicks and as many mm -hmm. views and as many retweets as possible. And that sure. culture has led to wild, wild misrepresentations of a situation, wildly simplistic uh, explanations of a, of a situation. And I don't want to participate in that. And so what, what I tried to do to varying degrees of success, apparently, as my listeners have let me know in no short order, uh, is is approach at a, a, at a very level head and try to say here are the things that here are the things I think they did right here are the things that I think we could improve on and here's the things as a community we have to wrap our head around the number one thing being if you if you 
either choose to get involved and participate in the discussion or uh, don't complain after the decision is made. But this, I'm going to sit around until it blows up on Twitter and then I'll respond. That well, to me here, isn't enough. Here's the okay, problem. Well, what I, I, go ahead. Sir. Just one minute. because there's, there's two things there that I want to pick up that Noah said. Yeah. Um, yes, it was out in the open. And yes, mm-hmm. it was on these mailing lists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Until this exploded, I never even knew those mailing lists existed. Yeah, so most I people say, didn't. As one of two million or so Ubuntu users, how are we supposed to find out about this? It's on a mailing list. Which so I, so my, I turn that around and just ask, what, what do you want today? What do you want Canonical to do about it? What they did, or what they accidentally did, which is post it on a forum, post it on Twitter, get people to actually know it existed. Yeah. Okay. So how? So hold on. So how long in advance do they need to post on the forum and post on Twitter before they're allowed to make an action? About three months to to let it sink in. Because you're right. Twenty four hours. A company like Valve should have gone straight back when they were first told a month ago and gone, "Whoa, this is ridiculous. You can't can't do this. this. Right. Work with you for the following month." to come up with another solution. That's the first thing or, Valve should have done. Or honestly, Zeb, hey, we're Valve. We have a lot of money and we make a lot of money off of games and you don't make any money off these 32-bit libraries. How about we'll maintain it for you or we'll pay for the development This has for nothing you. to do with that. I mean, th- this it is does. the problem is that Ubuntu was upset and rightfully so that they were the only ones maintaining mm-hmm. mass amount of 32-bit libraries. Right. But nobody wants, if, if, if Canonical came and said, Hey, we're going to remove all of these thousands of 32-bit libraries, mm-hmm. except libraries. for the four or five hundred that we mm-hmm. actually need. Right. Then that everyone would have been didn't, fine. Why would you not make that decision to begin with when didn't every Michael, distro out there and every other operating system literally in existence supports those same four to five hundred thirty-two bit libraries out there? Why would you decide we're not going to and anything that breaks, so what? This is, in, like you said about testing, this was a terrible decision-making from beginning to end. If they had it on the mailing list from beginning to end, nobody in that company that probably is supposed to read the mailing list thought, hey, wait, this is kind of a stupid decision to just freeze everything when regular users like us can figure that out in 15 minutes. This is, to me, shocking that a decision like this got through. Mm-hmm. That now they've come back and said, well, we're just going to support the four to 500 libraries that people actually need. Of course. Look, didn't Michael course actually do the math last week? And two. didn't he didn't he determine that it really they only need like 200? It's like 250. Yeah. 250 yeah. for like that. Yeah, yeah. I have full support for most things. And it's not even 250 implies that m- way more than Valve. Like like if you just wanted to support just gaming, you could get away with less. But even just then, it's still 250. Like it, there's so other that, distros but, that even have that. That goes that goes that goes back to what I'm saying. I, I, again, I really think there is a there is a world of hurt to be had uh, with the with the response because I I, I I really on both sides on both sides I think the community could have done a better job. I also think <laughs> Canonical did a, could have done a remarkably better job at responding to this disaster. Part of which is actually understanding what it is people actually need. Mm-hmm. And like you said, if we can figure that out, if if you can do the math in 15 minutes. Uh, on an, on an episode, and that's a real 15 minutes for those of you that join us on the live show. A real 15 minutes, he f- figured out how many of these libraries we need, and every other distro has figured it out. Why is it the the largest desktop Linux distribution? Why is that a struggle? But the one thing I agree with you on, Noah, is that you did 
um, have a very balanced approach to the idea. And even though you're getting negative feedback for it, the point is, while balanced we're very passionate, lots of data. Well, he had a very balanced weak sauce um, with regards <laughs> to, you know, there is a there is a plus side here, right? And and we do need to highlight that again because we just got very passionate about this thing. And right. Is that Canonical has done an amazing things in the community mm-hmm. for the desktop Linux. The people of Canonical that we associate with, that we work with, the developers that come on the show, we love them all. This isn't to just beat up on Canonical. But because they're so big, because they're so important, the fact that a decision like this was made, even if it was four months in advance and nobody stopped and said, hey, this is probably not a good idea, is surprising. And it does matter. And I think without the people say, oh, the Internet, you know, just goes crazy and rage and all that. Without that rage, they would have moved forward. I was just about to say and that. Linux would have been worse off for it. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that I admire that Noah did was he, he took that step back. He took that balanced approach and said, you know what? Let's just not do what the rest of the internet has done and start hitting Canonical over the head with a baseball bat. However, if everybody else had not have done that, what Ryan has just said, if we all sat back and thought, now this has got to be a mistake, let's see what happens on Monday morning. Mm. If that outrage had not happened... Canonical would have gone, hey, we got away with that, boys. Let's carry on. It's because everybody exploded and had all these hissy fits and, you know, the death of Canonical, I'm leaving Canonical, I'm never going to trust them again. And even Valve said, that's it, you're done. But but literally an hour later, we're not going to be supporting. Really? Man, that's such a great point, Zeb. That's such a great point. So essentially, because really what you illustrate is the community's voice is only heard when we're loud and obnoxious. Isn't mm-hmm. that how most yep. things work, unfortunately? <sighs> I, mean, in a, t- I mean, he's not wrong, but that is a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, in yeah. a way, it, it also means that if we were, we didn't have to be loud and obnoxious. We could have just been informed loud. prior prior <laughs> to it being happening and still be loud and still be like, if they were to said, hey, uh, the reason why we even found this is because we there was a, a, a forum post about it. But they never talked about it on their forum, like the community discourse forum, until... This they already made the decision. It was only in the mailing list that they were ma- they were deciding whether to do it or not. That's the problem. Like if if they're gonna have if they want community input, they shouldn't be just sitting in their echo chamber and want and expecting people to go in and find it. Because a lot of people like I know mailing lists exist and I hate them. They're in, super annoying to deal with, and that there are so many other technical methods to have communication that are a thousand times better. So why are we still using the mailing list as if that's the the single solution for everything? And by the way, Michael, I get hundreds of emails practically a day because I'm on OpenSUSE's mailing list. It is the most obnoxious thing on the planet. Yeah. And, and there are so many topics, while I find some of the discussions interesting, that you just missed because you don't have time to sit there and read every little topic that pops up in a mailing list because most of it is just what ifs. What if we do this? What if we do that? Exactly. You know? That's true. And there's also times where the, the mailing list will just start sending you what's new commits that have been done. Like, I don't I don't care right now. Like, right. and there's thousands of those. And I've been a part of mailing list for multiple different projects. And I have completely just purged all of them out. Like, I don't I don't want them anymore. No mailing list. I don't mm-hmm. care. And I, and I think one of the other things that Canonical can learn about this is because I, I, I heard a reason as to why they didn't make a response until Monday. And that was because all of the bigwigs within the PR side of the business 
were on a plane coming back from some sort of symposium or something. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute, you've got a $500 million company and you've only got six people who can make a decision or, or who can make an official not, not only that, here's the thing. I'm so, t- this is something that is getting so frustrating to me. And I pointed this out on my show too. Large companies had better figure out how to function in 2019 because we can see through your BS, right? right? If that was the case, just come out and say that. Just come out and say, hey, our PR people are on a plane. And as you know, we don't speak English. We don't give you real answers. We wait for the PR people to condense it down. <laughs> I'm serious. We, can, right. we, we, we wait for them we, to condense it down. And so you know. Right. And so, you know, that we're not just going to to give you the real answer. We're going to wait until it's condensed down. And we do that because you guys are going to drag us over the coal and and Monday morning quarterback every word we put on Twitter for the next three weeks. And we don't want to be responsible for that. So you're going to have to wait until this plane lands, which happens on this day. And we'll have a response to you that just come on and say that. And people would be like, oh, OK, well, the PR people aren't there yet. Now you're going to get flack for not just giving the answer and waiting for the PR people, but you know what? People mm-hmm. saw through that anyway. Apparently it's coming out. Uh, so uh, I, again, I just, I, 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 I think that this situation got way more complicated, way faster than it really needed to be. All it really mm-hmm. needed to be was, Hey, don't do this thing. It's going to break a thing that we care about. And then canonical to go, Oh, okay. Well, we won't okay. do that then. So again, let's bring this down to the basic user level, which I always try and do for, for our listeners out there. The answers that they have given us, after 2020, which is the um, sort of like the distro where everybody was, was, was no, sorry, 2004. 2004, okay. yeah. 2004. When that runs out five years later, do we have to worry about Canonical then not providing the necessary 32-bit? Or are they going to just keep that core of 150, 250 rolling forever? We have no idea. Right. Because unfortunately, they only said in their announcement that they were going to continue the 32-bit for 1910 and 2004. They did not say going forward. They did not say anything after that. Well, yeah, and I think it's important to note that every operating system out there is trying to move pure 64-bit. There's not one out there that does not have plans to do this. The fact And that's a good idea, by the way. Yeah, and they're all moving forward in that direction. And do we all wish it would happen sooner? Of course. But they all also realize that things like, for instance, people say, well, if Valve's not around, Steam's not around, then gaming on Linux is dead. Well, guess what? If Steam and Valve's not around, gaming on Windows is dead, too. Mm-hmm. So they, they, it, they all realize, hey, we have this critical partnership that's an important part of our desktop. And even though we'd love to remove 32-bit libraries and the support for it, we're going to lose certain important partners. And of course, this goes beyond gaming, which I think is important to emphasize as well, because some people are like, I don't care about gaming, kill it all. Great. Well, you're now no longer going to be able to use Wine. You're now going to lose audio codecs and in all kinds of different software out there that's still in 32-bit. Do they need to migrate? Yes. But should Linux be the one enforcing that migration to happen immediately when we're just getting to the point where we have the desktop comparable to and better than the other operating systems? No. Yeah. No, we should not be the one. Exactly. So that's exactly my thought. Although we should continue to push for it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So here's a quick question for you guys. So we've now got this five-year breathing space, yeah? How many think we're going to be having this exact same conversation in 2025 because it hasn't been sorted? Honestly, I think we're going to have the same conversation in 2010, you know, the 20.10. I think we're just one in, no, one year, we're going to have the same conversation as are you going to support it in 2010? Because we don't know. And uh, until they say what what their plan is for the future, essentially what the issue was, 
uh, in the sense of like they, they came back in during the week or the weekend and said something about how they're going to keep the 1804 packages maintained or something. And the problem with that is that those packages are incompatible with any future version. So 1804 mm-hmm. and 1910, those packages are incompatible because apt requires the feature or versions of the packages to be exactly the same. Otherwise, it won't install it. So if you install a 64 mm-hmm. bit from 1910 and you say, I want to get 32 bit, app will go, nope. Because that's not what we, what these are. So you can't even do that, even if they had them. It doesn't matter. You'd be stuck on eighteen oh four. Right. You'd have to. They, they basically, the the the. Uh, I was looking at the wine mailing list because of this fiasco, and I had never looked at the wine mailing list like specifically their mailing list prior to this. Because why would I? It's a mailing list. Um, but uh, but because of this, they they just they broke it down. Like the only way to make that work was if they were to take out a significant portion of what makes 1910, 1910 and make it compatible with 1804 to make mm-hmm. wine work. And that's not a reasonable response to do. So that even doing that would not work. So they, the, the biggest issue is that going forward, even if you had the 1804 packages, they're not usable. And if you, and, and valve did specifically say that they're looking into doing some kind of containerization in the future to make 32 bit be accessible without having to have the whole system as supporting it, but they don't, they, they needed time to do it because they're doing a lot of other things as well. And they're doing a lot of great things as well. So they won't, they don't want to drop what they're doing and immediately start working on this one solution because they only have four months to do it. So that's the biggest issue. Like, for example, you're talking about other operating systems that are dropping it. Mac and Apple said, Apple said that they were going to drop in Mac, yep. Mac OS support for 32-bit. They said this in July, no, June of 2017. Correct. And that, that means by the time they actually do it, which is going to be this, this fall, it'll be almost two and a half years of lead time before they actually kill it. Well, I think it's important to note as well, they said they were going to do it with Sierra. They said they were going to do it again with High Sierra. They said they were going to do it with Mojave, and they still have not actually killed True. it. They still have so, not doing it. We don't even know the they, new one's going to do it and, or not. And, and, they and, to, know and to quote Ryan, gaming partner. I was just going to say, and to quote Ryan, and look at what gaming is on Mac to begin with. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. here's the thing I want to wrap up with. The areas that I think could be improved here, because every distro, every company... Everyone, I think, in the Linux area can can benefit from this because you did a talk, Michael, on marketing. Yep. On and part of marketing, a lot of times, is how you deal with the public as well. That's part of your your That's marketing. Pretty much the entire purpose of marketing. Dealing with the companies, in my case, from as little as fifteen employees to now, I work for a company of fifty five thousand employees. Um, the idea of not responding on the weekend absolutely insane. And one of the devs actually responded to somebody saying be reasonable. They have families. They need to spend time with them on the weekend. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It's completely unreasonable that your company would be going through a PR disaster and you wouldn't respond. And that's when I had 15 employees. And now at companies with 55 and thousand employees, anything in between, if you have a PR disaster, you get people on the phone and you get a response yeah. together as quickly as possible. Even if that response is, we need more time. We hear you guys. We're going to come, we're going to reevaluate this and come back to you on Something. Monday. That mm-hmm. would have worked. Yeah. You need to put a response together. So they need to fix, fix that. Expecting people to read mailing lists as their official way of communicating. Terrible idea. Someone in our, uh, one of our uh, patron members said maybe they need an official announcement page to list the topics of the community that are really important or critical. You sure you could do lots of different things like that. I, I, I feel like that's one of those things that then here's what's going to happen. Five years from now, they're going to put all this work, time and effort into a web page to list the important issues to the community. And then 
we're going to be having episode uh, 765 of Destination Linux going, you cannot possibly be expected to go to this website with 10,000 issues and no, look through no. and find... One single page. I mean, and also, when we say critical, we're talking about things that decide? are huge. They can who decide. Who gets to decide what's Canonical huge? Decides. Who I... Sure. I don't know, man. They, sh- I really, they, th- they I, think it's I important think- enough to defend themselves saying that they've been talking about 2014. They, they think that this is important, so they should have. Here's, here's, th- here's what I think. I feel like this is where Canonical deserves some slack because I feel like everybody out there is like, this is an easy problem to solve. You're all a bunch of idiots. And I, I it just it seems to me and I could be wrong about this, knowing that knowing some of the people that I know that work at Canonical and knowing what bright, talented individuals they are, I, I find it sure. hard to. I find it hard to believe that they that if there was such an easy, simplistic solution that they wouldn't be doing it. I but, feel like the situation is more nuanced. I agree with and that, but I th- I think that there's a there's a there's a you know that the argument about how like there's there's some companies that are so big that they they move a little bit and they have to worry about this just even a slight move. They're like the Titanic. Right. with So much red tape. Like a, like or for example, like a giant when they walk, they could be stepping on things they don't even know existed. And and there's there's different things about like so once you get to a certain size, you have to take in consideration more than just your own purpose, your own thing. And I think Ubuntu is at that size, and I would think they would agree as well that they they have millions and millions of users. They have to, and also all the derivatives. If you if you don't even count, they have millions and millions just on Ubuntu. You count the flavors, and you count all the derivatives. They have ridiculously the amount of the, the the largest collective of people using Linux are on these bases. So anytime they do anything, especially something this vital, they should be t- thinking about that they're going to affect a ton of people. And they have to take into consideration that whole giant might step in on things. Not doing the testing after. Right. They should be. You've made the decision. You should making. They, I, they should be making the decisions based on this thing. There are sometimes, like for example, I agree that Canonical gets a ton of hate that they don't deserve. They have done so much for this community. Agreed. They have done so much for the platform. They were the first mm-hmm. uh, company to actually make a system that people were like, "Hey, this is kind of usable now." <laughs> uh, so they're like, they're the exactly. so. I would give them a ton of respect for what they have done. Like, and and I and even that's the fact that they people like hated on Unity and and uh, and they hated on Mirror and they hated on Upstart. All the things that they have done previously, they were doing it because they had to, not because they really wanted to. They felt that they had to do it. This time, they did it. Their reasonings for doing it were because they wanted to, not because they had to. And that's mm-hmm. why I think that they're they're not taking consideration like. But th- their size is important to consider what they have to do versus what they want to do. And then once they have a situation where they can't, they can do what they want, then it's perfect merge of that. But you have to consider what is the fundamental vital stuff of your system prior and, to And that's doing. why it's important to, while this situation is dead, I think it's important to talk about because this there are ways to go back, Noah, to your point for them now as as a company and say, here's where we can do better and mm-hmm. yes, some of these solutions sometimes are simple solutions. I, you know, like I said, I work for a very large company and sometimes the, the best ideas are you go back and go, why didn't we think about that? Someone on the front line, one of the employees on the front line goes, why don't we do this? And everyone's like, oh my gosh, how did we miss that? Because the company's so big and so bloated that sometimes you miss the obvious. Sometimes mm-hmm. the answers are simple, but maybe they're not here. Maybe you're right, especially with communication because their partner communication failed as well. And so, you know what's the, the biggest problem when you get that big is they have all of these review periods where they sit down and go, right, let's have lessons learned, okay? Now, they're 
having those lessons learnt chats because their policies and procedures say so and they want to keep their gold investors in people status not because they use the they're having all these discussions and someone sat down and they've got a nice committee now and they've gone what did we do wrong let's hope they learn the lessons and they're not just ticking the box because it gives them a gold standard in something or other that makes them look like a good company that's my only worry because i've seen it happen time and time again have the discussion tick the box move on had they responded nobody would have blown up or very little people a very little amount of people blown up and certainly not big shows like us because we would have said well they said on the weekend they needed some time to re-review and they're going to look at it and they did and they came back and reversed it the situation would have been over one simple response like that would have been you would have been done. They would have fixed the problem. Just, and that's where I think they could focus. I want to say one more thing about that. I actually uh, did an episode of This Week in Linux where I talked about this. And I waited until the last minute. I didn't record until like 7 p.m. my time on Sunday in order to do the show. And I waited to like, this is the last book before the weekend's over. So I'm just going to have to do it because it's the, the week in Linux. So once it's over, it's over. And... Uh, so I finish it and I upload the, I upload the episode and I publish it. And then an hour later, on like I post it on Monday morning. An hour later, they po- they post the thing. I was like, great, perfect. I, well, Don <laughs> yeah. and Michael, that explains a lot, right? Obviously, this is the reason that Canonical reversed their decision. Exactly. Was I'm not saying like, I'm okay. saying I'm saying <laughs> that I wouldn't have attacked them in the way that I did, and I didn't attack them in general. I, t- I attacked the decision being a terrible decision because it was, but I didn't, mm. and I, I I wouldn't have been as as harsh in that episode had they just responded within the you know three days of it happening. Well, I think we're sussed it out now because what they needed was they needed Linus Torvald. To send out that email for us. <laughs> That's so, what they need. The would, man is yeah. back. Let me That's tell great. you, Nvidia. <laughs> exactly, but uh, yeah, it's a good, a good point, Seb. Uh, so Linus Torvalds sees hardware uh, headaches coming, and uh, specifically about like processes and things like that. So at an open source summit in China, Linus warned that he expects there to be a more, a lot more problems ahead managing software due to hardware issues that are out of control of DevOps teams. So the warning is based on the increasing amount of cybersecurity issues and just technical issues, and you know for Fallout, uh, Spectre, Meltdown, Zombie Load, and others that have been plaguing some hardware, more specifically Intel, but in general have been also affecting other hardware as well. Well, some of this stuff anyway. Uh, these issues are causing massive patching efforts that have to be quickly rolled into the kernel, causing a lot of headaches and slowdown on other parts of the development. Now, the Linux kernel has a lot of developers, but the amount of effort that is required to do this is so much and have to do it so fast and they have to push it out. It's not a practical thing, even with the size of the development team, which is about like 1,500 developers. And... Uh, Linus also adds that because hardware vendors are reaching the limits of Moore's law, that software will be required to make up for more of the lack of progression by pushing the current hardware to its maximum potential through software. So, like, there's so many different aspects to this that I, I think that it's definitely something that we should talk about in discussion because, I mean, the whole meltdown Spectre thing by itself was such a, essentially a catastrophe for the amount of developers, the requirement that they have to do to patch such a gigantic hardware issue that... I'm pretty sure it's still not even solved in the hardware. Yeah, so it's not, this is, it's not. This is interesting because if you know, a lot of times we don't think about the downstream impacts 
kind of going back to the big organization conversation, you don't think about the the impacts of a decision, like you said, the giant stepping on things and they don't even know they exist. And this is a situation where every time there's a new Spectre meltdown, zombie attack, something along those lines impacting an Intel piece of hardware or AMD or whomever it is, then AMD and Intel go and do their work and they come up with a patch. All of the developers then on the Linux side have to implement that. They have to review the code. They have to make sure it doesn't mess anything else up. That's taking them completely away from doing any other work on the kernel as these 1,500 developers are dedicating their time to fixing the problems the hardware manufacturers in a way have created by having these loopholes within their hardware. Now, did they create them on purpose? Well, some with tinfoil hats may say yes, but likely a lot of this was accidental stuff where you know now the attacks are getting more and more sophisticated, especially as governments get involved in compromising systems. We're seeing these attacks get more and more complex, and now hardware is a big target for people to compromise machines. Uh, and so the fact that the developers have to be pulled off to stop, to fix the patch, to help Intel out, actually does halt the progression of Linux in other ways, because otherwise yeah. they may have been they may have been spending time uh, putting in you know new features and things that actually progress Linux forward. And now they've stopped; they have to stop to patch this. So I think Linus has a great point here. The fact that he has now highlighted that this is a problem. Then, so do we have any news on when Intel is going to retool? and come out with a uh, a chip that isn't easily attacked? Or are they still just going to keep reiterating the i9, the i10, the i11, and the i12 based upon this architecture that we know is flawed? Do we know if they are going to come out with a new chip? So they have, they're technically talking. talking about how they're going to mitigate the problem in the hardware, but they're not actually going to solve the problem yet. They're just going to do like some firmware mitigation stuff. Uh, but... We don't like when that's going to happen. We don't know yet because I don't think that's actually been done either. It might have been, so but happening. the chips are going to keep getting slower and slower as they just just mitigating. They're going to get slower. They're going to they're going to solve the problem, but they don't really have a solution to do it yet. So we don't know when they're going to happen. But well, we know that they're not, it, they're working on it. That's not entirely accurate, right? Like they know what the problem is. They know how to fix it. It just involves redoing the fabric of the chip itself, right. which I mean, limits like speculative. Okay, yeah. Like they know how to solve it, but they don't know how to solve it in the sense of like the whole infrastructure of their changing stuff, because it's going to be a lot of stuff changing, and they're going to have to change like the, the way they build the ships and everything. So, when is that going to happen? We don't know, but it's you know at least a couple of years probably. So, I mean, the the development of the Linux kernel, like this is an important issue to talk about, but I don't think there's any you know relief in sight. Yeah, I'm just glad I went to a Threadripper. Exactly. There you go. Welcome to Team exactly. Red. SUSE Linux Enterprise 15 Service Pack 1 has been released in Shanghai, China, the Open Source Summit. Now, there's some big changes announced with Service Pack 1, including a detailed version of how SUSE is going to support the demand for both traditional and growing containerized workloads with this latest release. SUSE Linux Enterprise is a modern and modular OS that helps simplify multi-model IT, making traditional IT infrastructure efficient and providing engaging platform for developers, said Thomas and I'm not even going to try to pronounce that guy's last name. Sue's president of engineering, product of innovation. As a result, organizations can easily deploy and transition business-critical workloads across their core on-premise and public cloud environments. Sue's open-source approach means that we'll work with customers and preferred partners and vendors, minimizing customers' disruption as they innovate and evolve 
their systems to meet their business needs. So some of the, in English, faster and easier transitions from the community for open source leap to uh, SUSE Linux enterprise, enhanced support for edge and HPC workloads for doubling the amount of ARM 15 uh, support and uh, system on chip processor options. This provides for a more uh, ARM devices and devices like the Raspberry Pi optimization of workloads and minimization of data latency. Um, so all in all, very cool stuff. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, first of all, I'm glad that you translated it for me because I'm sitting here reading that as you're reading it, thinking, wow, I bet this guy write, writes for the Arch Wiki. It's, I never <laughs> understood. <laughs> you know, we had, we, had, we, had some, we had some folks from Seuss on uh, the Ask Noah show. And um, the, I, I, at first, I was a little off-put by the very businessy, corporate-y uh, nature of the way that they talk. But, you know, really, uh, what I've come to realize and what I've come to recognize is that the ability to translate vernacular from the techie over to the fortune 500 stat, like Ryan's boss, for example, he doesn't <laughs> want to hear about the AUR and he doesn't want to hear about the awesome software bug that Josie from the blah, blah, blah podcast uh, fixed or whatever, you know, they don't want to hear any about anything about that. They want to hear how this technology, uh, how any technology fits into paradigms and fits into the little round holes that they already have. And if you want to fit a square cube into that, that's fine, but you got to find a way to make it fit. And I think that's what Seuss does very, very well. They take mm -hmm. this very complex, very cool piece of technology, this very innovative, hip, uh, and flowing piece of technology, and then they mold it back into round pegs that fit inside of the, the traditional sphere. Um, and, and I think that's what you get when you start looking at the release of, of SUS Linux Enterprise uh, Service Pack 1. It, mm -hmm. it, 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 again, it's taking the latest innovation that SUS has done and forming it to a model that the people that work in enterprise, the people that are SUS customers really understand. Yeah. yeah what I but, like about this is they are the, the way that they're ramping up their solutions here to me are very logical. And I have heard, and I, I think I've heard most of this on your show, Noah, on the various guests that you've had on that talk about, you'll hear some say, hey, everybody's moving to the cloud. You'll hear some people say, well, actually, a lot of people are moving back to a physical, you know, uh, they want to have the physical servers there on premise. And then some people are saying, well, no, they have a hybrid approach. And so I think that what SUS is doing here is they are, if you look at the highlights of their enhanced model, they're really trying to build something to tackle all three. So whether you want to be in the cloud and or have you know, your physical hardware on servers on site or whether you have a hybrid of both, they're trying to make the transition of you being able to have all those options available and as simple as possible. And I think that makes a ton of sense in this environment because based on all the, the different interviews and things you've had with all the different developers and the ones that we've had on this show, it seems like we really don't know at the end of the day where everything's going. It's probably a hybrid approach, meaning physical servers aren't going away. Cloud solutions aren't going away either. There's probably going to be a lot of mix and match of all of that. And being able to yeah. fluidly interact with all of them is very important to remain competitive. Yeah, I think the hybrid cloud is actually really probably the most interesting thing that people are doing now because there was this weird uh, time in like the 10 years ago when the cloud wasn't really a thing and it wasn't really viable and people were like, well, you got to put everything on the servers and we don't want to have anything local. And now that you can do this stuff on the cloud, 
a lot of companies are like, well, we want to have local access so we don't have to worry about if their cl- if this cloud goes down or whatever. So it's like this: the the mentality of the of the companies have switched heavily to the whole we want to have it local now. So having a hybrid approach to be doing both at the same time is a much more valuable approach, in my opinion. Yeah. So I think it's interesting. One of the changes they have here in their enhanced model is OpenSUSE Leap can now move to SUSE Linux Enterprise, meaning it's a simple transition if you want to go from one to the other. Very cool. Now, I don't think you can do that in the Red Hat solution, right? You can't move from CentOS or whatever to um, Red Hat Enterprise support. And I like this idea a lot because how many times does a small company start out and say, okay, well, we need this simple solution. We're going to use OpenSUSE on our Leap on our workstations. Then they start growing and they're like, oh my gosh, we need, we need this enterprise mm-hmm. support. And now that company can basically type in a couple of commands and be moved over to the SUSE Linux enterprise version and have that official support without having to change their entire architecture out. That to me is a pretty cool game changer yeah, there. That's a really cool feature. Like that migration is really cool because you're right. It's CentOS is compatible, uh, but it's not a, you know, it's, you can't migrate that easily like that. And this is a really cool thing. And it's actually kind of, it, it, it takes back to like the, the way that they have their infrastructure because when OpenSUSE, like a couple years ago, OpenSUSE was stuff was kind of messy, but they, they changed their entire infrastructure, how they build Slee, how they build Leap, how they build Tumbleweed. And what they did is so interesting. And one of the, the main factors of OpenSUSE being cool and how SUSE is cool because they're, they're all interconnected. So, Leap is basically the a snapshot of Tumbleweed, and and so is Slee. So it's basically like in a circular structure of they they do a lot of the innovation on on Tumbleweed, well all the innovation on Tumbleweed. Then they snapshot it, and it goes to Slee, and then Slee starts doing stuff, and that goes into Leap, and then they also pull stuff from Tumbleweed and put it in Leap. So they're all technically compatible with each other at this point, so that you can migrate from one to the other. I doubt you can go from Tumbleweed to uh, Slee, but you can go from Leap to either Tumbleweed or Slee, and that is a really cool approach because they're, they're, they're so interconnected. Okay, so moving back to uh, Ubuntu, but this time on a uh, more positive note, um, they've certainly been doing a lot of work promoting snaps, um, and it appears that they're now doubling down on those efforts by beginning work on a desktop-based snap store. Um, the commits have just started, and there are only two contributors currently, but this is all expected to come to fruition in Ubuntu 20.04 LTS. So in addition to the Snap Store uh, as a Snap and the Snapcraft IO webpage store, and potentially in conjunction with the GNOME software store, you will now also have a desktop Snap Store. <laughs> Well, now, and say, that's that's fragmented. a couple of uh, glasses of scotch or something. So and uh, it appears that they now have more iterations of snaps than Google have of messaging centers for messaging services <laughs> for, for Android. And there's a list of about 15. Oh, oh he went there. I <laughs> went there. Bring it. Oh, you went there. Yeah. But but one thing that is certain is that Canonical is doing a lot of work to make sure that snaps become the standard. Now, perhaps some of their best work is holding so many local and online snaps building courses and teaching sessions so that the developers are very comfortable using the solution. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, app images, flat packs, and snaps, what's everyone's favorite and who do you think is going to win in the end? And will there be only one? Mm. 
It's interesting the fragmentation that Ubuntu has here with all the different stores they're building out. I'm not sure I like this or not. It To me, I feel like why not just move it all into GNOME software, which I know snaps are available there now. So, so why do we need a separate store when you have Snapcraft webpage where you can go look stuff up? But maybe they're finding in some of the data they're collecting that people aren't realizing they're using snaps or that they're still getting tons of messages from people like, hey, is this available in the snap? Is this available in the snap? So I, I do get the joy of a desktop app. I just don't know if they have too many things now trying to... I would say that they, they what they're doing... For the website, I wouldn't count that as another... It is definitely a store, but it's it's a way to... You don't have to have the system installed in order to get access to these snaps. So I think that's good that they have it in conjunction with a desktop snap store. But uh, we're basically the current snap store that is a snap is essentially GNOME software, but the only thing it does is snaps. So that that's what, but I think the problem with that is that GNOME software is not made for snaps. It's not made for that purpose. And I mm -hmm. think that if you look at the way that snap, like the GNOME, the GNOME software that it's, it's available regular does have support for snaps, but it's not ideal. And there's a lot of stuff missing. And uh, if you look at all the backend stuff that you can do, like they added extensions for GNOME, but that experience is awful. You like you don't even you. There's no screenshots. There's no like. You can't tell it what it does. There's no demonstrations. So the, the Snome software store is not really meant for this purpose and mm -hmm. adding all these different extra features. It's meant for just being what it is, an RPM and dev-based installer. That's what it feels like anyway. So you can add backends, but it's not, it's, not a co it's not a cohesive feeling. And I think that's why they're making a new Snap store that's focused on Snaps and can present them in the way that they think is best for the, uh, you know, the audience and the, the users. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing is as well is you can't really, or you probably could, but you, it, the, the GNOME store is not built for Kubuntu or Lubuntu or Ubuntu Studio or any other one of the derivatives, whereas a Snap store will work on True. them all and will be one. Or non-Ubuntu derivatives, right? I mean, if you can install SnapD on Fedora, you mm -hmm. can install Snaps in the Snap store. You're right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point, too. I mean, it's definitely, I think there's some value to that as well. So like just having a snap store. Yeah, I didn't even think about that's, that. That's, you know, universal and as well as because the packages themselves are supposed to be universal, but the store should be too. So, yeah. so back to the question about app images, flat packs and snaps, which one mm -hmm. should win? I, I do think that I'm afraid we're going to have more fragmentation than what, so we're supposed to be solving through universal packaging, the fragmentation issue, but now we have three options of fragmentation in the universal package fragmentation fix. So it looks like snaps are obviously the most popular choice, I would assume, as far as downloads and things go. But personally, and I like snaps. I love all three, by the way, just very clear that I like all three. Personally, I love app images the most. When I go to a site and there's an app image, I'm no. like, happy because <laughs> I know it's, it, I don't have any issues with them and they are the simplest to just get running. And most of the apps where I'm looking for a universal package for are just apps I just want to quickly click launch and go. I don't need the infrastructure of. The only problem I have with app images is that when they bring out a new one, you have to download the new one. That's they true. Yes, that there's the updating, the updating thing is part of it, and I don't mean to pee in your Cheerios, but here's the second big problem with app image is that it, it does not tie it does not tie into the system as well as as uh, as snap packages do right so for example when jason was on our program we talked to him and he mentioned he said the first thing he installs is standard notes and in my ignorance i went what is this standard notes you speak of and why have i not heard of it and so i went to download standard notes and turns out it's available as an app image and so i downloaded it and the first question it asked me was it said do you want to create the launcher and i clicked yeah i want a launcher 
And then it, I had a launcher and I was like, cool, now I have a launcher. I click it and it launches. That's great. Then I went and said, well, now I want to move it from my downloads folder to some place where it's going to live. And turns out there's really no prescribed way to do that. And you end up having to do a bunch of really hacky stuff going into the desktop shortcut and editing the path and all that stuff to, to, to move where this app. Like, it's just not built to integrate into the system. Whereas a snap is it actually mounts as like a little virtual drive. It does Delta updates. So when, when a new version comes out, not only do you get the new version, but you don't even have to download the whole thing. You just have to download whatever changed. See, that actually annoys me about snaps because if you do what? like a DF-H on your machine and then you have like all of these slash dev mounted snaps. So, two, so two things. The, the official answers directly from a canonical employee is they are going to fix that. <clears throat> the unofficial indirect answer from me with no backing whatsoever from canonical and nobody has entered this. In fact, it was actually laughed at when I brought this up. I personally believe that there are probably some unforeseen circumstances when you begin to scale that because I don't think any of the system, I, I don't, and I could be totally wrong. This is totally a finger in the wind thing, right? I believe that the, the that there is there is really no there was really no vision of having potentially thousands of drives mounted simultaneously all at one time and for the system to manage if you have thousands of applications. I'm not saying I do, but some people might. And if that's I, I worry about that 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 the scaling factor mm -hmm. of of the of the way that works. But that aside for a second, I think when you start to look at which universal package manager should we go with, I think what you have to do is look at history. We had devs, we had RPMs, we had source. Which one of those won? I would argue devs strongly. In fact, there are certain pieces of software that were never released for anything else ever, but only came out as a dev. Uh, on, on the contrary, I don't think you can find many pieces of software that were only available as RPMs, but weren't available as, you know, weren't also available for, for devs. And of course, converting or, or compiling from source uh, to a dev was a fairly straightforward process. So in fast forward to 2019, what I would tell you is that there are a couple things that we have to, that we have to accept as whether we like it or not as a given uh, static factor. And one of those is that when companies come out and they manufacture new software, they're going to target Ubuntu. We can like it, we can dislike it, but that's the way it's going to be. So if Ubuntu and the company that makes Ubuntu Canonical is saying, hey, we're going to push all these application uh, manufacturers to publish to Snaps, read Lightworks, Ryan, when if we can get mm -hmm. snaps to work well on Arch, now all of a sudden when you're on Arch, you're going to be able to use Lightworks without having to have somebody from the community write you a special guide. I think that's our. I think that's the the path of least resistance to universal installers. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I would say yeah. that the the argument, the question about which is which the three. I agree with both both statements that Ryan said and that Noah said is that the snaps are the most likely to win, and mm -hmm. because of the, how they're how, what they're positioned to be, and they're also not just desktop apps; they're also server apps. So you can sure. snap anything like Next Nextcloud, which makes it so much easier mm -hmm. to install Nextcloud. And there's there's so many different benefits of snaps in that respect. And I also agree that when I see a website and it has an app image, I am so thankful that I don't have to deal with any kind of nonsense. I can just download the app just images and run it. That is such an awesome feature. And I also mm -hmm. agree that the update system does not work very well, like Zeb said, <laughs> that there is an issue that when yeah. you try to update an app image, you have to download the, you don't, there's some app images that don't even tell you that there's an update. There's some of them that do, that have a built-in mm -hmm. structure that give you, that, that give you a system because app images does have a functional system inside of apps as a format, 
but a lot of the developers don't use that format. So it's or that use that that mechanism to make the updates work. Or they don't they don't automatically update. They just tell you that there's an update. So like there are some issues with them. And I do, but the integration thing about uh, app images is not necessarily that app images themselves can't do it. It's because the distros actually, or at least the DEs, actually have to build in infrastructure to make it do it because they use a format that requires the system to know, like in this format, the system knows, like there are packages that you know where to put these files and where to put, like they could go into slash opt, they could go into whatever, they could go into slash home slash apps or whatever. There's all many, there's any places that have a choice and the system could implement those things, but these DEs and these distros are not doing it. And uh, Plasma has started doing some work on Discover to have app image support, which is really cool. But right now we're still dealing with, because you don't use a store to do this and you don't use a package manager to do it, app images are difficult. And this, and, and then it goes on to Flatpak. Flatpak are really cool. They have, but they're focused solely on the desktop. And that puts them in a position that's kind of awkward. Uh, but they, they do have a good update system, but they, they only recently started doing an update system and you know, it's just it's it, it, their mechanisms are still in the process of becoming you know viable. So which one's going to work or win out totally? More than likely, Snaps just because they're positioned as canonical in Ubuntu, and also because they do server and desktop, and not just the desktop. And because they spent so much time marketing, Michael. Because look how good they've done on the marketing. Watching and Kobe because they are better. All of these developers <laughs> sit there and do community events and live streaming events, teaching people and showing people, yes. everyone from beginners to professionals, they, how they, to put things in a snap. You're going to yeah. win when you do stuff like that. They do that. events where they actually fly people to places to work with them. Like recently yeah. they did that one in Montreal that had uh, the Godot developer, the guy who created the Godot engine. He actually went there and they started like trying to convince him to make a snap of the Godot engine. And he like jumped in and was totally happy to do it, and like he's now excited about using it. So like they're they're doing a lot of stuff in that respect, and I I don't think Flatpak or AppImage has done it at all. And the interesting thing about it is that AppImage is is the longest running format. It's been around for in multiple different versions, right. but for like different names and stuff for like ten years. Man, I remember when Etcher. How long has Etcher been around? That's been around for seven eight years, and 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 AppImage preceded that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was also uh, app images was like there was also this version called Click with a it was Click with started with a K that was uh, a, that was the first version of app image and they went through different names of what they were going and that's kind of why people think that app image is fairly new but fair, app, the whole system's been around from the same developer for a long time and there's a lot of mm -hmm. benefits on all three and I think currently my favorite is app images because it's just so much easier to deal with however depending mm -hmm. on what I'm doing if I'm getting like say for, I'm getting Caden live. I like the fact that Caden Live and you know OpenShot and other things like that are using app images to make it easy to get the to get the file and get the application running. Whereas you know Snaps, I think that Nextcloud is amazing that it's in a Snap. It just depends on what it yeah. is. But yeah, uh, there there are some benefits to having both. And I when I if if I don't have an app image, I go to a Snap. If I don't have a Snap, I go mm -hmm. to Flatpak. So I think that the as far as like the fragmentation, I don't think that the fragmentation is that big of an issue to have these three options. I think if a store, if we have a store that has support for all three, like Discover or like, you know, what they're working with and making a new Snap store, but that's still like just for Snaps. But like if we have something that allows you to easily get access to all three, I think it doesn't matter. I think the problem with the fragmentation that we've had for ever is the fact that the 
deb files. Yeah, we have devs. We have RPMs. We have source. We have tar.exe. We have an uh, EOPKG. We have, like, you know, continues. All of those exist. However, the the way that the, the, the fundamental structure of Linux worked has always been, or traditional packaging, I guess we can call it, has always to had the dynamic linking, which means that, yes, you have a deb. But if you upgrade your system, that deb is not for your version. You have to get a, de a different version of a de that deb, have a whole nother thing. So, for example, in some distributions, you have to have seven different debs depending on what version you have. So if you're making packages, you're making software, you have to develop multiple debs for multiple things. And maybe sometimes the packages you depend on are not compatible with Ubuntu versus Debian. So you have to have more debs from that. So even just debs themselves have a ridiculous level of how much you have to put into it. So to take the potential of... Yes, we have three universal formats, but it used to be 30 to 50 that you'd have to build. So even if it's three, that's still a thousand times better than what we had to do. Mm -hmm. um, quickly going back on to uh, the topic that Noah picked up about the scalability of snaps and the fact that Ryan was worried about all these slash devs being mounted. Um, at what sort of level do you think it will start to impact a user? Because, and I know... He's an advocate of snaps, but I understand that Alan Pope runs just under 300 snaps on his system. Yep. And that doesn't talk about any performance hit. Correct. Because he's an advocate and or is because there is no performance. Hit. Nope. It's because, yeah, exactly. It's because he knows what he's doing and I don't. I, I have nothing to base that uh, that assumption on other than my finger, my wet finger in the air. And I, w I think I was pretty upfront about that. I, I don't, I have no technical background to back that up. I'm just saying like, if you think about like, when the people that designed the people that designed like FSTAB and all of the things when the, the machine starts up and, and mounts a file system and all those things, never in their wildest imagination could they have ever imagined that every single application installed on the system was going to be an entirely separate file system. Mm -hmm. uh, that I, I just don't think that was envisioned. And so I question right. if that if it's going if if it's going to cause problems. But here's the thing. Understand Alan Pope works directly with the people that yeah. To probably talk to the people that designed this, the, the the file system thing and said, yeah, that's not a problem. It can go to the upper limit is 10,500,000 or whatever it is, right? Yeah. So they, they just know what they're talking about and I don't. But mm -hmm. when it comes, then that's like my Hail Mary to be like, huh, I called it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Hail Marys, Fedora's thrown a couple in here and Fedora 31 is shaking up, shaping up to be quite amazing here. So I wanted to cover some of the work that Fedora is doing. So Fedora has, um, you know, impressed people with Fedora 30. A lot of new users are going back and checking out Fedora again, at least in the circles that I run in. And Fedora Magazine is reporting some of the features that will be coming in 31 that I found fascinating. Like, for instance, we had a discussion last week about Wayland. Well, Fedora has been pushing Wayland since, well, forever, uh, in, in, in Linux years anyways, and they are doing more work now on Wayland to have it as their official desktop compositor. They're working with NVIDIA to provide better driver support, which I would say was one of the advantages that Ubuntu has had over Fedora forever, which is making it more user-friendly to deal with NVIDIA. And unfortunately, it sounds like everyone has to bow to that uh, need uh, for their proprietary drivers, but they're doing that here. And Pipewire, for better audio and video handling, 
as well as expanded flat pack support and features. So they're obviously gained their their team flat pack over there at Fedora. I think they're team any universal package, but they seem to push flat packs a lot more. And as well as they're adding in some container toolboxing. So I think it's interesting some of the features they have. I wish I would see a distro out there actually say, hey, we're going to do more work making AMD easier as well, since they're the ones writing open source drivers and not just focusing on NVIDIA. With that being said, I understand why this is important for Fedora to focus on when you think about a new user experience. And at the moment, while AMD is gaining so much steam in the marketplace, NVIDIA clearly from a GPU standpoint has the market under wraps yeah. and uh, in well, Intel probably first, but when we're talking about external GPUs, that's what, what I mean there. Um, but one of the developers, Christian, who is deeply involved in the evolution of, of Fedora workstation talked about some of the work that they're doing with Wayland and to our conversation on the last episode, he says this, our primary focus is still on finishing the Wayland transition and we feel we are getting close now. And thank you to the community for their help in testing and verifying Wayland over the last few years. The single biggest goal currently is fully removing our X window system dependency, meaning that GNOME Shell should be able to run without needing X Wayland. So they're working with NVIDIA to try to patch some things to make that portion of it work. They're pushing Wayland. So it's very interesting to see Fedora again coming out on the front of saying, we're going to be the ones to lead this change. And that change is going to be finally migrating to Wayland. So what's everyone's thoughts on that? Well, I must admit, I'm, I'm starting to feel your pain um, with regard to AMD and the fact that if you try and live on the bleeding edge of hardware, you're going to suffer problems. Because the biggest problem I've got at the moment, and I don't know whether it's because I've gone Threadripper and RTX at the same time, but there are very few, if maybe five distros now, that will boot a live USB to my graphical card without me having to put no motor in. And I think that's a similar effect that you had when you first got the Radeon, that because you didn't have the support in the kernel and you had to go to a five kernel before you could get that support, you were limited to this 1024, whatever it was, 1280 by 1024 display. So yes, this is great news that they are working on bringing these changes forward but they've got to make sure that they bring these changes forward to the latest mm-hmm. technology as well. And not like Ubuntu, where they fall behind and you've got to manually pull up um, your NVIDIA drivers and or your, mm-hmm. your kernel themselves. So, And I understand, yes, it's a continual battle because the latest and greatest and fastest is, is coming out. And I think the next big hurdle we're going to have a come about is when AMD bring out their new processors and their new graphics card guarantee you they won't be ready from day one because the distributions and Wayland and Fedora and everybody else just aren't keeping up with the technologies it's coming through yeah I mean yeah well I mean it depends on the distro that you use and certainly that's an issue actually we're going to talk about that in the show uh, for some of the new hardware coming out with AMD and some of the issues this presents but Fedora one of the things I love about them is they are not a, a I guess they're semi-rolling distro, and I love that about them. So unlike you know, where you've got the 6 to 12 months, you're going to be waiting for an update, and if you get hardware at the beginning of that, good luck, because then you're going to have to hack your system and put it manually onto another kernel and potentially deal with stability issues. Fedora moves the kernel in much, much quicker, um, but for people who need stability, they also offer that stability there. Now, I would argue 
you know, depending on what your needs are, uh, Arch and them seem to be extraordinarily stable as well, being on the bleeding edge. But Fedora is kind of that nice middle place for people. The one thing Fedora needs to do is roll Mesa as well as the kernel. That's the piece mm-hmm. they're missing. If they do that, I think Fedora would actually, if they put that in their comments, that Fedora 31 shipping with this and we're going to roll Mesa for, you know, AMD and Intel users to be on the latest video drivers as well. How amazing would that be to finally have a distro focused on somebody else other than NVIDIA? It would really be nice. Yeah, and also having the, like, it's still technically not being rolling, but still getting the, like, the the fundamental things that people like about rolling is having the hardware support. Like, if, if the hard, beyond the hardware support, most of these bug fixes and things like that, the majority of average users do not care. And having, uh, just getting them able to use their new hardware, that would be, a huge bonus for Fedora if they were to do that. Um, there's there's a lot of things that Fedora is doing that is really cool, and I and yeah. I, I do like a lot of the stuff that they're doing. And and they they talked about how they were going to you know potentially take a break, make new releases, and they're going to like start changing their development things. And we were kind of worried about what was going to happen with the new version of Fedora, and they decided not to do that, and instead kind of like put you know double down on the work of doing the retooling and also doing the development things. And it seems to be that was a great decision because of like all the stuff that they're doing now is really important stuff like the improving the pipe wire, improving the Wayland support and stuff. And you could argue that because Fedora is so far on the edge of, you know, not necessarily bleeding, but on the edge of testing things that they are helping push Wayland a lot because they have it as their default for uh, GNOME, for example. I don't know if they have it for Plasma or not, but uh, the fact that they're doing it, so much pushing that it could benefit the community for doing that, and they're they're potentially risking the amount of users they could have because of that. Uh, and I think that that's a good thing to say. That, and I'm, I'm glad. I think it's actually good that Fedora is doing it because they have a position where Fedora is not their main distribution because that's Red Hat. Red Hat is their main focus as far as like what they have to make sure is stable. So they have that separation is both good and bad in the sense of like branding, but it's good in the sense of like they're, they have, they have more options to to innovate. You know, I, I, I disagree with the way you've characterized that because the, the reality is that Fedora, I mean, they have a separate budget. They have a separate leadership team. They have a separate branding team. They have, I mean, they're, they're, they're two separate entities that derive their paycheck from the same place. Right. So I think to say like, Red Hat focuses more on REL or cares more about REL or any, I, I think that's a mischaracterization. I think that uh, they're they're two different products intended to do, to serve two entirely no. different markets. They just collect they just collect from the same bank. I mean, I, that's fair. I mean, in the sense that they're it's this it's the same the same funding model. This from it's still all from Red Hat. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reason sure. I, was, I was just making is the point was I was saying that they were splitting it off on purpose to say that Fedora is where they innovate, Red Hat is where they focus on stability, and but they still have a focus on stability in Fedora. It's not like they just you know don't care mm-hmm. about it, but they are able to sure. innovate because it is not beholden to the enterprise approach. Whereas, for example, mm-hmm. like Ubuntu is both the desktop and the enterprise and the server mm-hmm. and all of it together, making it where they kind of have to sit in a position where they can't do as much innovation. So I, I guess my answer I guess my I guess my answer to that would be I think that's what Red Hat is trying to do with modularity, right? Is that you can have a stable base and then an application layer above that continues to roll and sure. and flows with and you can decide what current you want to be on. If you want to be on the slow current that's completely stable, you want to be on the medium one, if you want to be on the on the on the, on the fast base thing. So I don't I don't necessarily I don't think I think the when you when you when you fr- frame it like that, I think the impression it might give to somebody is that 
oh, we have some new technology. Well, let's try it in Fedora. Let's keep it away from Red Hat because Red Hat needs to be stable. We can't afford to try it there. And I don't think that's accurate at all. I think they're absolutely trying that stuff on Red Hat as they are in Fedora. And I think the same thing is true. Fedora is not a rolling distribution, right? So right. there is still they still look at it and go, yeah, that needs to bake a little bit. We're not comfortable with it. But I, I submit to you that if you have any given piece of software, widget XYZ, and that piece of software comes up, at the time that it gets in Fedora, it also uh, goes into into the bleeding edge branch of of, of Red Hat. I, I don't mean that as a, as an eight day comparison. I just mean as a um, as as a general model. Right. I, I think that you can have the same piece of software in both of those in both of those distributions. I mean, that's a good point. I I kind of meant in the sense of like, for example, when Ubuntu Re- Ubuntu innovates, they do an innovation where. It's not. It's it's like a secondary thing that's over here on this thing. It's not actually potentially hurting their system. Whereas sure. when Fedora innovates, they are more free to risk things because when they some if they risk something, it's not going to immediately affect Red Hat. They don't have to worry that they're going to break stuff. Yeah. They just, so that's true. But it will break everybody that's running Fedora. Right, I'm just saying, right? like when they switch to Wayland. That was a very mm-hmm. controversial decision because you know Wayland was garbage for Nvidia when they did it. And they, but they knew they knew that this is going. It needs to be done. We need to have as many testers as possible. So they risked it, mm-hmm. and they had. They- but we have, but we have, but we had, we had Wayland on on on. Uh, uh, yeah, well, they, well, that was intentional. Uh, they tried it and then they pulled it because they were waiting to. They they figured that it was going to flop. Right. Right. They, t- they were just doing a test before they did the LTS. Uh, mm-hmm. And I and I and I think that it's. I mean, I'm just saying that. When Fedora announced it, it wasn't like they they put it into Red Hat as well. Like, and even CentOS didn't have it as like as soon as that is possible or anything. It was more mm-hmm. like Fedora. We can risk it. We're not. We're, we we're we're in the position where we can. Well, risk that's more. true. It's true. They are community driven. They're not enterprise driven. That that that's true. Yeah. I just meant I just meant the sense like there's well, some distros that can innovate more, and I I like the fact that Fedora is one of those that can do so because they're not yeah. tied directly like so interlinked that they can't do things without potentially yeah they can take some risks in there and i'm really happy though and noah i thought you might be really excited to see the pipewire work that they're doing so for those who don't Mm -hmm. know pipewire is kind of like an integration of all the goodies of pulse and all the goodies of jack but putting it into one tool that will allow you to uh, basically have all of these applications for audio well let's just say it Audio and Linux has needed work for a long time, and Pipewire is kind of that solution. You, pulls audio, FDW. Uh, you, you know, with Pipewire, you capture and playback of audio with less latency. You have real-time multimedia processing, multi-process architecture in there, G-Streamer plugins, sandboxing uh, applications utilizing Flatpak. This, this, to me, is one of the most exciting things, um, projects that are being worked on, because I think audio in Linux really is one of the areas where it would be weaker than a lot of the competition and pipewire to me. Do you really, like- do you really, do you really think that, I mean, if you, if yes, you think, absolutely. Yeah. Without a doubt. Really hundred percent because mm-hmm. in, in Linux, I can go into my, def- I can go into my, my volume control panel and I can, I can set a, an output of a given application to feed back into an input of an application. I can have as many stereo streams as I want in windows. I have literally the input and the output and that's it. Yeah, I, I think it's more of the software uh, availability and what you can do with that software and other platforms uh, that make it a lot easier. For instance, if I want an application like Jack in Windows or another OS, it's going to be a simple installation of a GUI and I'm ready to go. Whereas in Linux, mm, that's mm. a massive undertaking to get that same thing done. And I think that's why you see most of your audio people 
utilizing the platforms they use because you're right from a flexibility standpoint and someone with your knowledge in, in audio, I have no doubt Linux at the, at the professional level, maybe even better, probably is definitely, definitely better, better than some of the options but, out yeah. there. but just getting to that part that, is a that you've spent years learning, that's the piece where you can take a Windows user, slap a program on top of the audio interface, have them doing professional things in, you know, maybe hours or days or weeks versus in Linux where mm -hmm. it's taken you years to get to that level. All right, you've convinced me. Let's make it a snap. Pipewire <laughs> is where it's at, man. And that's why I'm so excited about Pipewire because it looks to simplify all that in a flat pack. I mean, how cool is that going I mean, to be? I mean, kind of worth noting that the, I'm pretty sure the people who work on Flatpak also work on Fedora. So that kind of makes sense why they would be integrated so much. Uh, yeah. But the uh, the the thing about the, the uh, just, just a small story. Uh, when I first started, uh, you know, learning about Jack many years ago, I found this guy who was like super heavy into Jack and was like super good at it and, and knew all, all the different configurations of how to, how to do the different plugins and how to make everything work. And I was like, that's really cool. Well, how long did it take you? He's like, uh, well, the first time it took a long time, but if I, once I got help, I was like, okay, could you help me do it? He's like, okay, do you have like a weekend we could sit down and set up this stuff? Like, <laughs> I, we, I agree that the, it's, Jack is amazing. And once you have it set up, it, is, it gives you so much control. And you have, once you get that professional level audio, Linux is it's, it's, it's the, big, the best option. But to set that stuff up, I mean, if, unless you have Ubuntu Studio. You know. This week, the Raspberry Pi 4 has come out. One of our absolute favorite single board yeah. computers ever in the history of single board computers. The thing mm -hmm. is... Every time they reiterate this thing, I have to eat a little more crow because when the Raspberry Pi one came out, I said, and I stand to this to this day, this is not a thing for commercial or enterprise or any real work. It's just a thing to teach kids about computers. And with the Raspberry Pi one, that was completely true, as evident by the fact that when you plugged in too many USB devices, it would restart because the power supply couldn't handle it. Uh, but every time they iterate a new version, it gets better and better and better. And this is probably the first one and I'll be interested to actually kind of talk to Zeb a little bit about this to, to talk to him, that could actually function as a fully functioning desktop computer and could actually, in some certain circumstances, replace traditional desktop computers. So this is the Raspberry Pi 4. Now, in traditional Raspberry Pi fashion, they've done as much as they can to keep it as consistent to previous models. So you should be able to drop the Raspberry Pi 4 into a lot of the same project enclosures that you had before. It won't fit the it won't fit exactly the same way because they've added a couple new ports, which we'll get to. But if if you had a, a particular space carved out for an embedded project, their goal was to kind of keep it roughly the same footprint so it would still fit. All of the software is backwards compatible. The Raspberry Pi 4 uh, features a quad core. Cortex A72 processor running at 1.4 gigahertz. I have no idea what that Cortex A72 means other than that's the model number. If it means something to you, I'm happy for you. But here's where it gets really cool. Dual micro HDMI 4K monitor output. So the ability to actually plug in dual displays. There are so many people that I know that won't use a desktop computer or workstation computer unless it has dual displays. Not only does it do dual displays, it's doing dual 4K displays. So if you, like me, had tried to run some 4K video content through a Raspberry Pi 3 and found it to be subpar, I'd say it's pretty safe to assume that this time you won't have that experience. They offer this in three different versions. It comes in a one gig memory version, a two gig memory version, or a four gig memory version. It has type C power, which I'm extremely thrilled about because it also opens up a whole new realm of docking capabilities and all sorts of things. Uh, gigabit Ethernet, 
And one of the things that they introduced with the Pi 3 that they're carrying to the Pi 4 is the Raspberry Pi PoE hat. And so this is essentially a little plug-in module that you can put on the top of the Pi, and it will allow you to power the Pi over Ethernet, which makes it even more useful for industrial and embedded applications. So the one gig version, I think, is 35 or yeah, 35 bucks. Two gig version is 45 bucks, and the four gig version is 55 bucks. Now I have a four gigabyte version on order. I was able to purchase one. It isn't here yet. But Zeb has one. So, Zeb, I'm curious, have you fired the... Oh, sorry. Uh, two USB uh, ports, regular USB ports um, are also included. And I think that pretty much covers it. What's unique about this option is the four gigabytes of RAM along with the processor and upgraded video. You can run this as a low-powered PC solution. Um, Zeb, I'm just curious, have you tried running this as a desktop? And could you function as with this as your, as your primary daily desktop driver? Most definitely. Um, I mean, I got it, I installed it, I plugged it into my 4K monitor and powered it up. And you can very quickly and easily change it so that you've got a full 4K display. There's one warning, however, that I would like to start off with before we discuss its capabilities, yeah? This thing gets dangerously hot. Now, I'm talking seriously hot. If you were <laughs> to hold either side of one of the USB cables and the Ethernet port to hold it to put the USB 3 cable in, you will burn your fingers. It's literally... Really? You've got something wrong with yours. If you're going to get it for children to learn computing and learn either get them some sort of specialized glove that's got some finger pads on it. No, seriously. They can no, hold it. I know. It's just... Half the things with a pie is you can actually take it apart and put bits and pieces on it right. and do all sorts of stuff. But if you just want them to use it, get yourself a heat sink or a fan and get yourself a case on it straight away. I seriously yes. hope you have a defective version because to me, no. that that's a really bad. You can, you can find on the internet already people who have shown the heat, output of a raspberry pi 3 and the heat output of a raspberry pi 4 mm-hmm. and it's probably 80 percent redder on the four. Oh my goodness it, it is they should be bundling a fan with that then and yeah, the, it, the reason is because of the four hard. gigs probably the reason the the reason that's particularly problematic though or the reason that 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 that's going to come into to effect is if you are going to sport these dual 4k monitor outputs yes it's going to get hotter but that's something that should have been anticipated and the reality is that if you have these people that are using them inside of projects mind you most of these project enclosures are plastic right mm-hmm. and so if you if if that's the the place you're putting them if it is getting as hot as you as as you're saying it is Zeb, then that poses a real problem for not just the people that want to use the pie but the people who are putting them inside the cases and the case manufacturers and stuff like that and once you start getting into putting in a fan as you suggested Ryan, now you're into this whole active cooling thing and that kind of changes the nature of what the raspberry pi is can do and and the mm-hmm. kind of applications it's going to be in right i don't see there was when the first raspberry pi came out i remember somebody actually used it in a prosthetic leg like a commercial like medical place was using this as in inside of a prosthetic leg there's no way they're going to do that if it needs a little fan to spin right mm-hmm. so does that change the nature of the pie and the use case of the pie i think i think it does because let me give you an example as well i, I powered it all up and I, I chucked it on there put 4k on and then i started watching 4k videos and i would say within five or six minutes up in the top right hand corner appeared a little thermostat which was red I thought, oh, it must be getting hot, and I've got no fans or anything nearby it, so I started blowing on it really hard. After about 45 seconds of blowing on it, the little light went out. 
So I thought, great, I've solved that one. Carried on watching the videos. Five minutes later, this red warning light comes out. So you do mm-hmm. need either a heat sink or some form of active, um, you know, fan control so that you can you can have something constantly spinning on it. Um, whether it would run two 4K displays, I have my doubts because it was occasionally getting choppy. And I'm not using the uh, oh. Wi-Fi. I've got, I'm connected direct over Ethernet. So 4K monitor, watching 4K YouTube videos, occasionally it would get choppy. And yet watching exactly the same on my main rig, absolutely zero choppiness, but which you would expect from a Threadripper and a, a 2080 Ti. So I very much doubt you could run two 4K monitors at 4K. But they must have done it, otherwise they wouldn't have sold it like this. So there must be a use somewhere. Not necessarily. I mean, let's be honest. It's not like the Raspberry. It's not like the original Raspberry Pi or the two or the three lived up to the expectations of a 1080p computer that was running in two gigabytes of RAM. Like there were obviously there were performance hits that you took. You just accepted them because it was a thirty-five dollar computer. Mm-hmm. What I was really hoping was going to be the case was that this thing. I'll give you an example of what I was hoping for. The smart TV market is a, in a is an abysmal failure, right? Like, there's nobody out there that says, I bought this smart TV, and seven years later, it's still the best smart TV out there, right? <laughs> they pretty much double in power every year, and that makes the last year's model totally junk. And so what people have gone to is buying smart boxes that they connect to their smart TVs, and frankly, all of those suck. Uh, I'm sorry, Ryan, but including your Apple TV. Um, so all of, the, all, of them are really, all of them are really terrible, except for the nvidia shield and the reason the nvidia shield is really really awesome at a media player is because it's so overbuilt for a media player it's insane it's designed as a gaming console essentially and it works really well as a media player and so what i was hoping was going to happen with the raspberry pi 4 is it was going to be so over engineered and so over designed uh as as like basically a mini desktop computer that for the scaled down embedded type applications or very basic desktop kind of use it would fly. And from what I'm hearing from you, Zeb, that's really not the case. They don't even, they're not even necessarily meeting the expectations they set for themselves, much less exceeding them. Hmm. Uh, but let me just say, the minute I turned it down to 1440, it ran smoothly, a silk, I noticed no stuttering, no problems whatsoever, and no thing <laughs> came out. So going back to marketing then, why not have, why not sell it as two 1080p displays? The original, the, mm-hmm. the Pi 3 was a 1080p display. If you could have two, uh, if you could have two 1080p displays that worked flawlessly, I'd rather see it sold as that. I'm fi- I would have been fine with that. I've been excited for that. Heck, they could just change the marketing spec. And when you plug it in, you go, hey, it could actually go up to 4K. That's kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. And they go, yeah, we only really designed it for 1080 though. I'd be yeah. fine with that. Yeah, Absolutely. And the thing is as well, um, Two monitors is only 30 hertz, yeah? If you want one 4K monitor at 60 hertz, then you have to use the HDI port nearest to the power supply. Mm. Um, so, yeah, if you, and again, if you turn it down to 30 hertz on 4K, yes, it's watchable. There is the occasional stutter, but nowhere near as much as when you have it on um, 60K. But I haven't had it enough yet to to really put it to town this was just one day's testing and, and watching bits and pieces and all the rest of it but where i really found it useful was having all my tutorials up on that running on the raspberry 4 while i was trying to install arch on my main machine that was just awesome to have that that there and so much easier than having a laptop on your desk while you're trying to work on your main machine so it's got potential but i think yeah there may be of um overestimated its capabilities somewhere. so zeb i have a couple of questions for you uh, what distro did you put on the Pi? 
The one that it came with. So you put Raspbian on it. Which is Debian 10 or something. Okay, excellent. And then what power source are you using to power it? Their own Raspberry Pi power supply. Okay, so you, you wow. I bought, so I bought their is, power supply as well. So you made a joke, uh, Noah, about nobody cares, uh, if, or if that means something to you, whatever, for the processor. But the A72 specifically was made for the ability to consume so much less power mm-hmm. in comparison by like 60% to its predecessor, which was the A57 or something around there. Um, so yeah, to be, the to be clear, I wasn't, I wasn't being, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't trying to insult the processor by any stretch of the imagination. No, 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 I, just, okay. I don't understand what making models mean. So I can, I'll read it off the, off the spec sheet, but the reality is like, if it, like you say, if it means something to you, awesome. I just have no, I have no idea the A67 from the, well, it's, it's a mobile processor, which obviously mobile processors generally don't have fans sitting inside your phone either, right? Sure. So it's meant to run really cool. So what's shocking to me about this is that he's running the official OS because I thought, well, maybe there's something with the OS where it's putting this little thing and you know, he's using some other derivative, but he's not. Mm-hmm. He's using the official power supply, which also calls that. So Michael throwing out there at the very beginning of this, it's got to be the RAM. You might not be wrong there, Michael. It's it's something here is causing this to heat up to an extraordinary amount. And either one is they're putting a faulty processor in, which I highly doubt, or two is the amount of RAM that is being put on this board is causing the problem. And there's reports. There are reports that are saying that the, the one the one gig version doesn't have as much heating issues at all. Like it has this has similar issues that the Pi three did. It's interesting. I guess here's here's the other here's the other side of that, right? <clears throat> if you think about this, uh, we've all held our phones when they become uncomfortably warm, right? To the point that I wouldn't say it burns anybody, but it's very very hot and it hurts your hand. Consider the fact that the actual chip is buried underneath the screen, in between the battery, inside of a plastic case, and the amount of heat that's and which, by the way, none of those things are particularly conductive. And we're still feeling that amount of excess heat on the outside. Maybe that's just the nature of the beast. And Zeb, do you think it would have been better if it was in a case? Do you think it would have been fine? Um, it would have still been hot, but you wouldn't have burnt yourself as you tried to plug in a, a, a USB cable because okay. it's just this flimsy little device and that you can't yeah. really, there's no edge to hold it so that you can grip it and then put, so you've got no option but to hold the metal case. And it is aluminum cases that, mm-hmm. that house the USB and the Ethernet port. Sure. And holding those, it's obvious that the heat is transferred from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think if you held them for a long time, you would physically see burn marks on your fingers. That so, is shocking. Well, I guess here, is it though? I mean, I guess here's yeah, the thing. Because in the tech world, if you have something that hot, you have some, literally something's wrong. Like, for instance, people bring yeah. their laptops to me and their power supply is heating up excessively. I know their power supply is going bad by nature of that heat because now there are certain things that are meant yeah. to get hot. Um, and like Ethernet wouldn't be one of them, though. Yeah, and, and that those ports heating up like that are not meant to hold that kind of heat. Typically, I mean, you you could do a lot of damage to a board. And my question is, by putting that four gigabytes, is this a situation where we're going to have a bunch of these boards we're returning? Because I ordered one too because of that heat. Because heat 
Heat is the damaging factor here. When you're overclocking your CPU, you get more heat. You attempt to dissipate that heat, but you also lose life cycle of that CPU, meaning you're not going to get the full amount of life that CPU could have by constantly having it at such a high heat and cooling that off still. You're still losing life of that CPU by doing so, which is why I so, don't recommend it. So from the, from the Raspberry Pi FAQ section, the highest rated temperature for the Raspberry Pi that it's designed to work at is 85 degrees Celsius. So I don't know if that's possible, Zeb. I don't know if you've got one of those little like uh, infrared thermometers or anything that we could figure out what the actual operating temperature is if if parts of that are exceeding that. But I can tell you this: I I googled 85 degrees uh, Celsius and found it's 185 degrees Fahrenheit, and 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 to me that is far in excess of what I would have expected mm. a, a a tech object to get to. Yeah. I would yeah. not have when you're with the way that you're describing, Ryan. I would not have expected a piece of electronic circuitry to get to almost 200 degrees. Yeah. Right? That's the inside of my oven. I cook it literally. Yeah. You cannot hold it like that when it's running. That's you shocking. Burn your fingers off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can see, that's the main. And I don't know where on here the memory is. Whether it's these two modules up here. I mean, I'm assuming that's the processor. I don't know what that one is, but I'm guessing these might be the memory modules, and they're pretty close to that aluminium section. So I'll be interested. No, I haven't got any of those thermometer things because I'm not mm. really that sort of geeky, but I'm, I'm fairly... Oh, I have one. Ryan will be able <laughs> of course to you do. give us a much, a much stronger idea. Yeah. Of- I also have some heat sinks, and I have some solutions for uh, Raspberry Pi, so I will do some testing and see what we can get it down to, the heat and stuff. But I love that you brought this up, Zeb, because... I would not yeah. have expected that at all, and I would probably send it back thinking I had a faulty board. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's actually some interesting things because people there's there's some uh, there's this one uh, in the chat in the patron the patron chat there was a somebody mentioned that there is a cooling system that's like that goes on the bottom of the pie like completely on the bottom and it cut and it cools the whole thing and there's also some cases that have heat sinks built into them like for example the flirt case which is by the way one of the nicest looking cases for pie in general. I jeez holy crap michael there are a few things that i think are 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 you've nailed perfectly in in this case you you opened my brain hole up sucked everything out of it and then regurgitated it in front of everybody else thank you for being no here's the thing he's right all of the official the official case looks like a child's toy every other case that's popular on amazon is looks like some sort of piece of junk the rat the flirt case literally looks like something apple would have designed and it's eleven dollars yeah everybody everybody in the world whatever they design nice things i mean they make crappy products and you are stuck to them but at the end of the day (laughs) they look really nice and Michael's right. I don't know why everybody isn't using the flirt case. That's a totally side thing, but you're one hundred percent right, Michael. Yeah, the flirt the flirt case is also is really good. It's really nice looking, and they also make that the flirt actual the flirt device. This is really cool for like remote stuff. But there's uh, but they also uh, did a thing where they have the new Cody case. So yes, so it, Cody themed flirt case. Right. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's and, it, and they also made that super nice looking. Like it's, okay, so. Since we're already down this rabbit hole, let's just let's let's finish this all the way out. The one of the things that the pie that I've always dreamed of doing with the pie is making a Cody box. And one of the biggest things that hinders me from making a Cody box is the fact that I want to be able to use a normal IR remote control. And my chosen IR remote control is from a company called Innocent. Mm-hmm. And Flirk actually announced a couple of weeks ago that they are going to form a partnership with Innocent to make a specific thing for their Flirk device. And if you're not familiar with the Flirk, it's a little USB. IR receiver that plugs into uh, anything. It doesn't have to be a Pi. It can plug into anything. And it's going to work natively with the Flirk remote. So 
you should buy a Flirt case, which they have for the Pi 4. If you're going to use it for Cody, you should buy the Cody Edition case. You should buy the Flirk module, and you should buy the Intercept remote. And now I'm done. That's, yeah, I mean, the that's... Cody Edition Raspberry Pi case is, is out there as well. Yeah, what? Made by Flirk. The, yeah, the Flirk win. The, the Flirk win. Yeah, yeah. We, talk, we talked about that. Yeah. This is, okay. $11, $11. $11. Go buy yeah. one. It's really, ni- it's really nice, and the, the Flirk case has a heat sink in it, so that might help as yes. well. And it actually looks like it's a professional product rather than some science project. So yeah. there's that. That's true, too. Mm-hmm. So keeping on the heat, Mozilla <laughs> brings the Chrome. Wow. Um, and it's nice. in a good way because over the past few months, and it's been awesome. Firstly, they announced the enhanced tracking protection by default for Firefox Quantum, which keeps third-party cookies at bay. Now they've launched Track This to help confuse the advertisers that may have collected data on you already. I love this. The concept is simple, stupid, and hilarious, and everyone just needs to go and do it, okay? So what you do is you go to the Track This link and then select an alter ego. And they have a number of alter egos from like, Ultimate Rich Pan, Executive, um, you know, sort of bogus shopper or whatever. And you click on this link and then it warns you that it's going to open up 100 tabs and go to different advertising websites so that it confuses the hell out of these people who collect all of your data. Nice. The downside is for the next couple of weeks, you're going to get some really weird random adverts popping up on your um, Mozilla feed. But hey, if it's mucking up their data collection, it's all a great bit of fun. Now, comes to the big thing, unless you guys have proven it otherwise, yeah? It don't work. Yeah. I've gone to Firefox, and it gives you a warning. <laughs> don't be sorry. We've given you this thing that's going to open up 100 um, tabs, but we're only going to open up 20. It opens up three and stops. Hmm. Mine worked. That's yeah. interesting. Okay. I went it depends to on the browser, Chrome. I guess. I went to Google Chrome. It opened up one and stopped i went to falcon it opened up one and stopped what's going hmm. on i don't know so if you guys have got another experience please take over uh, probably an nvidia issue there's ever more it than likely your video card's not powerful enough to open more yeah. than one would tab you stop you it probably not mate yeah i need to go out and buy a, a radeon 7 <laughs> no you don't as also using amd i didn't have an experience so that's that's obviously yeah uh, actually i did this on my intel laptop and it's not a very powerful one, and it worked all 100 tabs open. So that is weird that you experienced that, Zeb. Yeah. I, it it, it did been, open all 100 for me. Could it have been I had, I've got something. Ad blocker or a tab blocker or something. Yeah, if you have a JavaScript plugin, that might be doing it too, depending on how they do it. I'm not sure. I think that they launch them all. Like you, If you go to the website and you have to open it from that, I, they're probably using JavaScript to open them up. I've so. only got uBlock Origin. Maybe that, that's maybe that could be what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll uninstall that and then run it again and see if it Because what happens is there's a lot, of the, a lot of these security and blocker tools, if they start seeing somebody doing, you know, the old days where, uh, well, if you're in Windows, then you would open a browser and you've got a virus and it would try to open hundreds of tabs at a time to throw all mm-hmm. the ads at you. And probably it's a security feature to not have that happen. So they're blocking. Once it sees two, three or four, it stops it and doesn't allow any more to open. But in this case, it is such a cool idea that they did here, and it's so much fun to do, and you can almost immediately see the results. I'm talking within like four hours where your advertisements, if you re-enable, go to a browser that allows the advertisements through, start offering you these weird things, and it Mm -hmm. brings you to some of the funniest sites like 
water, like for the survivor profile, water tablet purifiers, backpacks, axes. You're searching all of this like survival random craziness. And it's basically throwing the advertisers their profile on you completely off because they're like, oh, my gosh, this this person's gone mad. And now he's a survivalist. And it's just such a funny idea. And the more people that do it, the more we can kind of let the advertisers out there, you know, know, stop it. Like, well, if I go off the air, you can blame um, Firefox because I've taken off the ad thing. Now I'm going to go track this. You're going to do it live while we're recording? Open up 100 tabs. And it's, it open should up, go well. it's open up one tab and stopped. Well, That's probably go. good for right now. Yeah. <laughs> we we'll we'll figure it out after the show is done recording. <laughs> <laughs> I must yeah. have something else. Um, and that first one went to Dick's Sporting Goods. There you go. Yep. There you go. It's a great place. So yep. the other thing that they've done is Firefox Preview. So for you privacy-hating Android folks, you now have a new option here for Firefox. I had to get you on that. No, come on. Yeah, I totally. Yeah, we us, us Android people, that's what they say about us. We hate privacy. Well, yeah, you would if you're running one. Um, wow. So Firefox Preview is basically they, they made a Firefox focus for Android, specifically uh, devices to basically create a privacy environment where advertisers and Google and everybody else isn't zapping away your information. The problem was it didn't have all the features of a full-blown browser. So now they're launching Firefox Preview, which is basically taking their Android browser and including all of the privacy functionality that they had in Firefox Focus and merging it all together into a fully-fledged browser so you can actually browse things and have your privacy on the Android platform, which I think is absolutely amazing. But my favorite thing is Firefox and Mozilla focusing on the thing that we love them for the most, which is privacy and security as their main focus. And that's what I've seen come out the last, you know, three or four announcements from Firefox has been focused completely on the security and privacy. And I love it. Yep. That's one of the best things about Mozilla is how much they're focused on that. And, uh, and I, I love the fact that they're doing this and I had both Firefox and Firefox focus installed on my Android phone, both of which had their issues. And when they announced this, actually I was having, when I made the video, I made the seven reasons why I like, I prefer Firefox there was a lot of people who agreed that they were and that this was there was a lot of people who disagreed as a you know whatever but there was a lot of people who agreed the desktop firefox was fantastic but they hated the mobile version and then when this announcement there's people who came back and said oh i actually really like the mobile, the preview now and it was really interesting because when I, after i saw this happen i was like okay i have to check it out is this is this firefox preview even as a beta and preview and everything is it going to be like, is it what I want? And it's so far I've completely replaced the other versions that I had. Like it, it not only does it have a better layout and has Firefox and uh, the pri privacy and security in focus. It also has uh, a better layout of the UI completely. Like I really hated the fact that I wanted, when I wanted to refresh a page, I had to click the little hamburger menu, then hit the, the, the refresh. And it was always, my hand is always at the bottom of the phone, right? And you have to stretch all the way up, but no, 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 listen, the, the, the bottom, the, they changed it so that all of the navigation tools are at the bottom of the browser so that you're, you're always accessible to it. And it's so much smoother and so much easier to use now. So, and, and also they added a dark theme. Nice. So these are all awesome things. And um, 
they are basically saying as well that you're going to have a faster, the fastest browser, uh, mobile browser experience out there. So they're bringing a lot of the quantum fixes and things to it. So definitely go check it out. You can install that now if you are on an Android device, Firefox Preview, and it's early adopters now. So understand there could be bugs and things out there still. But if you want to try it out and help with that, go check it out. Yeah, it doesn't have extensions yet for the preview, by the way. So, so that might be something people might want, but. Actually, I, I I realize I don't even use the extensions on the on the mobile anyway, so whatever. But this is really cool, and also check out the uh, track this. And if you're curious to see what happens with your ads, do all four and just see what happens. There you go. <laughs> okay, so I don't know what's happened to the real dust geek, but I'm <laughs> loving this because I'm on a gamer <laughs> section, and I'm talking about the Steam summer sale, not some pixelated pile of nonsense. So. <laughs> Oops. The Steam Summer Sale is back. And whether you're a gamer or a not, you're going to have empty wallets. Um, with Proton being broke on games is now a Linux problem as well. Um, it's a tradition that there is a game to play within Steam to compete for the free stuff. This year, it is Grand Prix theme. And you can join a team and compete in the race uh, to win. And some sweet uh, free stuff is available in the shop if you do win. But there's also loads of other games that you can pick up, like Dying Light, Doom, the Borderlands franchise, which um, Ryan talked about earlier on that him and Michael yep. had, had a stream about, Hollow Knight, XCOM 2, Killing Floor. And of course, you can't do anything without mentioning Euro Truck Simulator 2 as well. Wait, yeah, wait, 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 wait. There's this you, other thing called Rocket League. There it is. There it is. Like, you, you missed that one. I was, okay, Correct. yeah. Make sure you say the Rocket League. <laughs> you can get 75% off of Euro Truck Simulator 2. So it's yeah. got to be worth it for that alone. Come and join me beating up on caravans. So <laughs> I've actually bought, I'm not a gamer, but I went out and bought three games because I thought, you know what, for two ninety nine, three ninety nine, five pound, let's just give it a go and see what happens. So I'm looking forward to giving to give yeah. some of them a go. So let's go to the biggest gamer out there. Um, Noah, what have you bought? <laughs> I played a game once Tux Racer on a bootable drive at my lug. That's a true story. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. You're getting we were somewhere. Using, we were using it to see if there was video output back to the projector. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so I just want to say that um, I agree with everything that Ryan says about Flea Madness. So let's talk about some of the games that we picked up here. Like I have picked up Dying Light. I picked up some expansion packs, Michael, for Borderlands that you recommended. Mm -hmm. And there was another game I recently picked up, but I got it on my mobile. And now I have to try to find it because I need to install it and play it. Uh, but there's been a lot. What's amazing with Proton being out is now when you see these Steam summer sales, I also use ProtonDB.com, which is basically a database of what games work with Proton. And I look for something platinum because honestly, I don't want to deal with any issues at all. Right. But they have varying ratings of how well it works or if it has certain bugs, they'll rate it cold or whatnot. But anyways, you can go there, you can look at the game and see if you can play it. And it's amazing when I'm like, oh, that game looks interesting. Go to ProtonDB. Yep, it's available. Yep, it's available in Linux. <laughs> yep, it's available in Linux. It's so refreshing to be broke as a Linux gamer on Steam Summer. 
I love it. Yeah, like the Proton, it's it's so much different. Like this is the first year of Steam Summer Sale we actually had Proton, so this is like it's a completely different dynamic because like last year I was like, okay, great, there's a lot of games that I can't play. Now I actually can play them on my Linux system, so that's awesome. So the Proton change is super super great. There's also a game that I recently found because. I saw the name of it, and this this has to be just one of the most ridiculous games. And I love ridiculous games. So there is this uh, game that I found called uh, Super Inefficient Golf. <laughs> and the idea of the game is that you do not have a putter. It's it's like imagine golf with friends in like a putt putt style, but you don't have a putter. You have C four explosions. Nice. So you just put a bunch of C4 explosions, and you have to pick and choose which one you want to destroy at the same at a, at a certain time to make the ball move in certain angles. So it's definitely an interesting game. It's only single player, but at the same time, it's such a ridiculous game that I want to get it. And for the Steam Summer Sale, it's only a dollar. There you go. So go check out Steam Summer Sale and look at all the games you can play now. Yep. And also, just as a quick tip, I made a uh, a URL that is super fast so if you want you can go to destinationlinux.org slash steam sale and it will just take you right to the games that are already uh you know it'll take you a search filter that is linux based games it doesn't have proton yet but i'm gonna work on that see if i can do that but you know it'll be everything that's on the sale and linux based and next up we're going to talk about our software spotlight for this week and our software spotlight is uh, a couple actually they're going to do something talking about BitTorrent applications because BitTorrent applications are super powerful for many different reasons you know getting like ISO downloads and helping people uh, be able to do those for different distributions uh, but there's the thing that's interesting is that the most commonly chosen is transmission for most distributions they come in by default they get transmission and I think that there's other applications that are a little bit better transmission's good it's not horrible or nothing but for example Deluge is the GTK application for BitTorrent that I would suggest, and that's our spotlight for this week. And uh, it has a lot of cool features. It, uh, it's it's com- it's completely pat- compatible with uh, BitTorrent and also like MetaLinks and things. And it also has it's cross-platform, so you can use it on, on other operating systems as well. They also there's also another one called uh, QBitTorrent for a Qt-based application. Uh, I, I use QBitTorrent for that because of the you know KDE user thing. Uh, and there's a lot of cool features that you could have for uh, these different applications. So you can actually use RSS feeds to automatically download content and download ISOs from you know whatever. If they say they set up an RSS feed, you can just get the, the, the ISOs and start seeding it immediately. There's so many different cool things about the the Deluge and Qubit Torrent. You should both you can check them out. Uh, they're both worth it, and uh, spe- especially the cute version because you know cute. Our tip and trick this week is pretty cool as well. It is the double ampersand sign. Now, if you're not familiar with what the double ampersand sign is, it allows you to concatenate two commands together and uh, and run them in sequence. So, for example, how many times when we go to add a repo, is it paste the PPA in and then sudo apt-get update and then sudo apt-get install whatever the package name that we just added, right? <clears throat> you can do that all in one command or all in one line, really, by... Uh, putting the 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 add PPA command a space double ampersand the setup get update a space the double ampersand and then setup get install whatever the thing is that you want to install and and let that thing run now the important thing to remember when using the double ampersand is each one of those commands are going to be treated entirely separately so for example when you're going to install something if you do sudo apt get install and then a bunch of package names you can place attack Y at the end, and it will automatically answer yes to all of the questions as it's installing. Well, with the double ampersand, you're going to have to place that attack Y 
at the end of every one of those commands. You're going to have to do it as in the example that we're using maybe three different times because it's going to run that command, stop, run that next command, stop, run that third command, stop. Another caveat, if any of the commands fail, the following ones won't run. So if you try to add a PPA, for example, and it's an invalid PPA, the update won't work and the install won't work. Like it won't even try to run them because it's going to fail. Um, but double ampersand, a really, really great way. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We love our patrons and coffee supporters. Just want to give a special shout out for all the support that you gave us and also for two of our patrons joining us last week, last minute, to help with the show, which was amazing. That was awesome. You, you too can be a part of the live show and watch all of the fun as it unfolds, and you can do that for just $1, and that's darn near free. That's right, Ryan. We're on coffee. I and did that's it. the way that you can support the show. Coffee offers a free, nice monthly option that allows you to have the same perks as Patreon. There's going to be a link in the show notes and on the website to join coffee. The perks include things like access to the live shows on it versions of the shows as well as, and I mean this with all sincerity to Ryan specifically our most sincere gratitude for not only becoming a coffee supporter, but having the opportunity to hear coffee pronounced correctly by Ryan. <laughs> I mean, I think that's terrific. You're yeah. welcome. I would sign, I would sign up for coffee just because of that. Yeah. Right. I mean, I would. Yeah. Well, the good news is as well that whether you're a coffee patron or a Patreon patron, you it's a great day. You'll write us an email. So you can let us know what you think of the show, whether or not, as a coffee supporter, you think you're a patron, or do you believe that Patreon now, why would you do that? is to Patreon? Why would you do that? <laughs> we were all in agreement. Everybody was having a great day. It was a good day. The sun was out. The, 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 it was a bright, sunny day. It's and storming yet, here. And, and Ryan got it right. And I brought you back down to earth. Irregardless of whether you use Patreon or coffee. <laughs> oh my gosh. Do yeah. not go nuclear on me. <laughs> you put the words right out of my mouth. But anyway, if you can't send us an email, which is comments at destinationlinux.org, then please tell us on Telegram, Discord, Twitter, Mastodon, and a whole host of other ways that Michael has given you on destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. Even now, Michael you know, sends us emails there. No, that's he's he really? only about himself. Is that is that the email where people are getting fed up of us ragging on Michael? Yeah, yeah. Michael sends us emails posing as somebody else to say you need to treat Michael better, and it no, comes from no, the no, same no, IP address happen. every every time. That's not true. Yeah, I'll buy I'll buy an AMD graphics card before that happens. <laughs> wow. Anyway. The fun doesn't stop here. We have all, we have our own content on our own channels if you'd like to check it out. So, for example, you can go to youtube.com slash dosgeek to check out Ryan, where he fills your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can check out Zeb's content by where he's driving, uh, doing live streams, driving around at crazy speeds, moving aside caravans on uh, Euro Truck Simulator by going to youtube.com slash Boss. You can check out Noah, where he does a, uh, his own show for the Ask Noah Show, which is a weekly talk radio show that airs at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. So you can join him and ask your Linux questions or, or tech questions. Uh, and it, uh, that's like I said, the Ask Noah Show. You can also go to uh, tuxdigital.com to check out my content, like the This Week in Linux podcast, where you can see the, uh, the in-depth weekly Linux news uh, podcast that i do and also other linux related content as well as the firefox content that i'm recently doing uh but anyway also remember to like that smash button and share the show on social media everybody have a great week and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the kofi patron <laughs> do 
dude, you should you should end the show. You should leave all of that in. You should you should run it just like that. That would be hilarious. Like all of us were dumbfounded for a solid three seconds when you said that. Man, how long was that segment on Ubuntu? Like 35 minutes? Oh, it's another hour. Yeah. And, then, and there's you saying, oh, we, we, we need to talk about this, so we'll keep it short. We couldn't stop. Yeah. We couldn't stop. I think we, the, were, we, were definitely, we were definitely harsh, but I think that we were also fair in the sense that we also acknowledge is like... The, yeah, the, we weren't weak sauce like Noah did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. I think... Isn't it weird when people move cameras? It feels like you're on an adventure. I never thought that, but now I feel like I am. Right. I'm putting my hands up like a roller coaster. Are you ready, Michael? That's perfect. (laughs) Nailed it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was good. That needs to go in the outtakes.